Hello and welcome to Motorpod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 725. We're recording this on April the 20th. I'm Richard Jarrett over in the UK and joining me back from his recent travels to the Circuit of the Americas, Mr. Jim McDowell. Jim, good evening. How are you? Oh, good. Good to be back home. I do enjoy Coda. I enjoy going there with the RV and being there the whole time and not having to run around and find a place to eat and all that other stuff because I've, I've stood waited two hours to have dinner in some of the restaurants that are nearby. Yeah. Austin is a busy town to begin with. So I do enjoy being at the track and not having that, you know, as a plus benefit, we were able to walk back from where we were sitting around the five, six, seven turn to the RV in under mm, four minutes. Wow. Doing it in style. <laughs> They're doing it. You've got to do it in style, right? So yeah, yeah it is very good. So cool. Well, we'll get into what's going to be a, an illuminating talk about Kota fairly shortly. I'm sure. So just a quick uh, shout out to the subscribers because we must stay on top of this. So through PayPal, we have uh, Keith Kovach, Nick Saban and Alan Fleming. And then our Patreon friends is uh, Gary Shavit, Steve, Monk, Paul Lang, Hudson Cooper, Darren Andrews, Rob Freitas, Carl Clark, Jacob Rower, Jeremy Burnish and Dennis Kindig. And if anybody else would like to join that list of Patreons or PayPal contributors, please do so. Because, uh, yeah, we're always looking to do more with the show and every little bit helps. So with that being said, Jim, let's just quickly crack into some news then. So first on the list is, well, what I'm calling Toprak's ill-fated MotoGP test. Now, what did you pick up on this, Jim? Because obviously you were traveling probably around the time that that happened. Not much. I was shocked that they gave him a test in the middle. With everything around Toprak, I think we've all said, you know, we want to see him in MotoGP. You have a problem. You have Morbidelli who has a contract. Contracts are made to be broken. I think we all know that you get enough lawyers around, you'll find some way to weasel out or (laughs) pay your way out or however to get out of a contract. But I'm wondering if they just didn't want a different voice on the bike to try to see if something they're missing something, right? Uh, I'll give you this. You're putting together like a big thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and you work on it for a while and you can't make any piece fit anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So you're too close to it. You you can't see what's happening. So you get up, you maybe eat lunch or take a walk, uh, watch some TV, whatever. And you come back to it two hours later, you put five, six, seven pieces in right away. And I'm wondering if this was just one of those things like, hey, Top Rack is a very skilled rider. He's very fast. He's very good on the motorcycle. I don't know how his feedback is to the guys in the world superbike paddock but i'm assuming it's probably pretty good given the way he rides and his setup so hey you put him on the moto gp bike which is probably the most similar of all of the bikes to a modern superbike that exists on the moto gp grid you know engine configuration chassis very very close yeah and see what he could do just see what he could do now that's what i've thought about it i, I didn't see anything about it because being on the road and uh, driving for a couple of days to get down to Texas. But he, what was ill-fated? Did he not turn good times or well bike problems? I mean, like you say, Jim, it was quite a surprise, the timing of it. Although, So there was a private test going on at, I believe it was Hareth, wasn't it? Um, so Cal Crutchlow yeah. was there on the Yamaha and a couple of other teams. Initially, the news coming out of that test was that Top Rack was within, it was either 0.7 or 0.9 of a second of Cal's time. Which, as a initial kind of takeaway, you think, hmm, okay, not too bad. And I was chatting around that time. I was having a few WhatsApp exchanges with Greg Haynes from uh, Eurosport. Greg and I chatted a few times on the show now. And we were quite excited about how it was appeared to be going. But since then, uh, and certainly over the weekend, Lynn Jarvis gave several interviews to people, I think almost effectively putting an end to speculation that Top Rat's going to be on that bike anytime soon. 
because mm. it would appear to be the case that he was quite far off Crutchlow most of the time across the course of the two days. So whether he was able to contribute anything very useful, obviously we don't know, Jim, do we? But I think the times were not great from what we're hearing. So that plus the complexities around the timings of some of the contracts and the fact, of course, that Yamaha only have two bikes, one of which is that rider's not going anywhere next year because he's under contract. And the likelihood probably is that Morbidelli will get a reprieve, I suspect, unless they can tempt somebody like Jorge Martin, who has been suggested to be in talks with Yamaha about taking over that seat from Morbidelli. Unless that happens, I mean... Jury's out on Martin again after this weekend just gone, isn't it? But we'll come to that. Yeah. So that's for sure. It, it sounds as if it probably didn't go quite as well as everybody might have hoped that it would do. And it might have done more harm to his prospects of getting across to the MotoGP paddock, more harm than good. So I think that's kind of where we're at with it. I think you're right. I think that's probably sums it up. I'm more down that lane of they wanted another voice to see if he's quick or quicker than Morbidelli, maybe to put a stopwatch against it, see what's there. Yeah. You know, I just think that's where it is. I'm not so sure Top Rack really wants to come. Mm, interesting. Well, there's a whole lot more here that we don't know. I think that that's obvious, right? Definitely, yeah. The bigger question is Yamaha in itself is like, well, where'd the power go? There, there was this raving motor that was so awesome that literally Quattro was like, I got this now. And it seems to have disappeared. No one seems to know where that is because Quattro still seems to think he's being outmotored, outpowered, out of everything. Well, he's certainly being out-accelerated. I think that's the issue that they've got, isn't it? I think the terminal velocity is not too bad, but if you know if he's struggling to get off the turn, uh, we'll come to an example of that actually when we talk about the main race on the Sunday, or the only race, I suppose we, we have to say, because <laughs> it wasn't in the sprint. That's true. I mean, with regards to top rack, he's going to be out because after quite a long, I think it's five or six weeks that World Superbike have been off since the last round. So they're back in action in Assen this weekend, kicking off tomorrow, obviously because we're recording this Thursday. Uh, so they'll be out for FP1 tomorrow morning. Whether he'll say anything much about it over the course of the weekend, I'm sure he's going to be getting asked quite a lot of questions by the various journos that will be there. But yeah, my takeaway impression is that that hasn't gone terribly well and might, in the fullness of time, be seen as a perhaps a bit of a mistake to have done it just at the moment. But you might be right, Jim. I mean, maybe he does see his future in the World Superbike paddock. I mean, it's a much more comfortable place for him to ply his trade, I have to say. But there'll always be that slight, in my mind at least, there'll always be that slight tinge of regret if he doesn't get a chance in MotoGP just because he is such a talent on a World Superbike. But then a prototype and a street bike are wholly different beasts, aren't they? But think about it too. Safaglu was absolutely brilliant on a World Supersport bike. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, basically unbeatable to some extent, right? Um, he went to Moto2 and you think, well, this is a carbon copy of one to the other, right? But he could not make it work, could not work, make it work with the tires, could not make it work with the chassis, which goes to show you how much stiffer a suitor slash Kalex slash speed up slash Bosco Core are than a stock street bike frame, even though they are, they have some freedom to add bracing and support to it. But there's that stiffness that either can't get over or can't feel or lack of feel or whichever way it is mm. to them. And it didn't work there. So it could be the same thing. So if I, I mean, Top Rack could have been, this, this doesn't work for me. I don't like I don't like Michelins or whatever it is, right? You know, and as MotoGP bikes in particular, but not just MotoGP, I mean, Moto2 and Moto3, even as, as you've just said, as they've become kind of, or maybe not more extreme, although the MotoGP bikes have certainly have become more extreme in various different ways. But I, I think probably the transition from coming across from World Superbike is even harder now, or, or the hardest it's ever been. And let's be honest, he's only had, what, four days in total, I think, on that bike, maybe even less. Yeah, that'd be very difficult to go fast. His style of 
what he can do on that street bike chassis, let's call it. It's all about feel. It's all about the way that that chassis and the whole makeup of that bike talks to him. And it might just be that, you know, he gets on a prototype and it doesn't talk to him at all. And so he can't figure it out. Uh, And certainly in the short amount of time that he's had, that's only to be expected, probably. Again, my own speculation here. No, nothing, nobody's saying this or anything, but this is my speculation. Top Rack rides on the front, sort of a la Marquez. Yeah, absolutely. The Michelin's not capable of that. The Michelin GP tire is not capable of that. We, they need a stiffer tire. That was the thing that Bridgestone had, was it had a very stiff front end, very stiff carcass. You had to ride it very, very hard, yeah. and then you could deform it. But once you had it deformed, then you had a very good contact patch. There's an article, Motorsport Magazine, Matt Oxley's talking about this and talking about the fact that if, if MotoGP wants to spice up the show, per se, they need to get better tires. Michelin needs to bring that tire, that new tire that they keep talking about that they don't bring. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. I think that's probably one of the bigger problems with the Honda, too, is that Marquez can't ride it. And we talked about this, that you can't ride that front tire because that contact patch. I mean, Stoner would, with a Bridgestone on the Ducati in 2007, he'd ride the corners with the front brake on to tire load it. Yeah. And was it you on one of the recent shows, somebody quoted, I think, was it Colin Edwards of saying the problem with the Bridgestone front was you couldn't crash it? It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, hey, I mean... What was it back in the 90s when Yamaha was running running a Dunlap rear or a Dunlap front and a Michelin rear? Yeah. And they called it a Michelop <laughs> because they, they wanted the better tire and they couldn't. They had a contract with Michelin, so they were running the Michelins on the rear. Well, that's in the Matt Oxley article, too. So, <laughs> but go read it, people. Go read it. Matt Oxley, read it on Motorsport Magazine. It's, it's really interesting. The top right thing I'm sure will come up again as the season goes on. But uh, so we'll park it for now. But yeah, not great. Just very, very briefly before we move into the main talking points for today. So BSB, we had the first round. I don't think I mentioned it on the last show because uh, I think it was coming that weekend. I didn't actually make it to Silverstone in the end, unfortunately. But um, the racing, as always, was great. Very much dominated by Tommy Bridewell and Glenn Irwin on the, now it's called the Beer Monster Ducati this year. That's the Paul Bird Motorsport team, basically. Uh, and Josh Brooks on the FHO BMW. Absolutely stunning. He won a race. Nobody saw that coming. I think everybody thought Brooks was completely and utterly washed up. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he sort of continues that progress after a couple of pretty dismal years. Certainly last year was appalling for Brooks, bearing in mind that he had won the championship not that long before. So, And then Walton Park is coming up, not this weekend, but the following weekend. And I am going to be at that one for the whole three days. So we'll try and do a bit of moto podding whilst we're there. And if anybody wants to meet up with me, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at Richard Jarrett. And then more your wheelhouse really, Jim, than mine. But Moto America, I think that kicks off this weekend in Road Atlanta. Yes. They are at Road Atlanta. Um, I'm sure Scott Bolton will be there. So I uh, probably will try to grab him again and do a little update from down there. So stay tuned for that. Yep. And then, you, in fact, this was one of yours, Jim. I haven't actually seen this yet, but you've mentioned a new series. So there is a new series. It is about the TT and the Real Roads riders. It's called No Room for Error. And it's basically my take of it from what I saw just on Twitter is they basically have access to all of, all of the greats all the big names that you can think of, and they're just following them around with cameras. I have no idea where it is as far as a platform or where you can stream it. Don't know yet. It's supposed to be in May. I don't know if it's going to coincide. It's launched with the TT this year. I don't know that much about it other than the little snippet in Twitter is very, very interesting. I think I retweeted it out there. So check at MotoRGV on Twitter. You should find it in my timeline somewhere. If you follow that, check it out. It looks to be really, really good. I would imagine, Jim, uh, I, I would need to look up the website 
address but last year if you recall the tt streamed the event live now you had to subscribe to see all of the coverage but so they have their own kind of tv channel so i suspect that series is going to go out on that website you know the actual official tt live website uh, and i would That's imagine it would probably be free to air wouldn't need a subscription for that i think you need the subscription for the actual racing stream which is understandable uh, it's actually very very good value for money as well yeah i think i looked into it i just other things came up for that day and i didn't yeah. see it one other thing to mention about uh, Moto America as well, Jim, that I heard on one of the other podcasts that I listened to is that I'm pretty sure, and I think this is not geo-locked, I'm pretty sure Moto America is going out live on YouTube. That's correct. This year, globally. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not geo-locked. So you should be able to see Moto America on YouTube. It's not geo-locked. I got that from Greg White. So you should be able to. So yes, if you're interested, you should be able to, no matter where you are, on this planet, if you have access to the internet, you can have YouTube. You should be able to watch Road Atlanta this weekend. Dorna, are you listening? <laughs> you know, giving some free access. Not on everything necessarily, but, you know, it's the way to go. And fair play to Motor America for doing it, I have to say. I agree. Yep. Motor America has recently gotten props from me twice. Once just for understanding their own rulebook and enforcing their rules per the rulebook. Yep. <laughs> if you heard the Daytona episode, you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Uh, if not, go back and listen to it because it is pretty funny because it doesn't seem like anybody read the rulebook. And then I give them props for also putting out a non-geo-locked YouTube feed so that anybody can see the racing. And that's going to be big to put eyes on that as well. Yeah, so. and actually, funny enough, just in terms of some recent Twitter activity, pertinent to one of the people that certainly follows the show, John, uh, who's um, unfortunately having to go through chemotherapy at the moment uh, and had listened to your brilliant chat with Scott uh, and had picked up on I think the fact that I think he wanted to get back into watching some Moto America and was sort of asking, where can I watch it? Now, I'm pretty sure, certainly last year, it was available on the European Eurosport online subscription service, which isn't too expensive. Now, it wasn't being shown live. It would, would appear the highlights, you know, a day or two after the event. But the fact that that might be available live on YouTube is obviously going to be great news for John as he wanted to start watching a bit of Moto America again. And why wouldn't you? Because it is brilliant. So, uh, and a few riders popping back up in the field this year. Cam Bobier is back, isn't he, Jim? He's back, yes. I think it's like the worst kept secret yeah. ever. But <laughs> yeah. yes, I think it's officially confirmed that he's riding. So, so it should be good. Mm-hmm. So, initial impressions, uh, having been trackside at Kota Gym, I know you've got a few things that you want to point out. I don't know if you want to sort of kick off with a few highlights yeah, sure. or lowlights. Uh, it depends on how you look at it. I'm not sure how they're going to how they're going to manage this. There was not many, in my mind, there was an equal number of people or less than there were last year at the event. The draw was not nearly as big. I, I, I don't think that mainly because there weren't a lot of people walking around on the Friday in the... Uh, souvenir stands and the paddock not, i don't want to call it the paddock area because that's not what it is where all the people set up their tents yeah. to sell their merchandise a vendor market market well, i don't know what they call it they, they have some name for it friday was very disappointing it was ghost town city i think there was about an equal number of people that were camping for year over year i think there's sort of the same number of rvs maybe a few more uh-huh. um that were there again you, you know you see a lot of the tags from Saw tags from California, saw tags from Florida, uh, saw some from Iowa and Wisconsin, places like that. So definitely people coming the distance to get there to, and to be there. But I think the one thing that really was frustrating, and it's not, I don't know how to say it, but other than just say it, we go to get our, we have our tickets, it's all electronic in your phone. We walk in and the people who are there to get us into the track had zero idea how to operate their phone to be able to scan and read 
our phone, which is, I get it. It's a little thing, but it is frustrating mm -hmm. because you've come all this way and it's a world-class motorsports facility. So there's people from all over the world who are there. Granted, they're probably in the paddock and they're going through different places with their VIP passes. And I understand that, but still, you know, if you're trying to take your friends to a race and you showed up there and that happened, you would be upset. So that was yeah. the first thing. The other thing is that I understand why they do it, but I don't like it. But they put up a big sign on the gravel access road that runs sort of around the track that as you walk towards turns five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, it's a very big sign. And it'll tell you that there are limited amenities beyond that point of that sign. So literally there was no place to buy food or drink if you're out over around by the eight, nine, ten area, which that is bar none, the most awesome place to watch a motorcycle from is right there. Mm -hmm. If you're going to the track, you have to go over there and you have to watch the MotoGP bikes crest that hill. It is mind blowing how fast that they go through there with the bikes moving around. But there's, you know, a few portalettes that are there for you for to relieve yourself. But the other disappointing thing is there's not many people there, but they won't let you bring in a cooler. And they won't let you bring in anything but bottled water that's been that's sealed. And you can have that. This really irritates me. It really irritates me. I get where they're going with it and whatnot. But then they took my umbrella from me, which made me mad because it had a point on it. And it's my KTM umbrella that I bought at the track last year. And I said, you're selling these in the paddock. <laughs> How can you tell me I can't bring in something that I could just buy over there? And there was no answer for that one. So that was a bit, again... I, it's a, I understand where they are and why they do it, but it's <laughs> you, yeah. right hand, left hand doesn't know what they're doing. And the other thing is, is that if you're there, I felt sorry for the people who flew in because the price of food and drink was outrageous. What was a burger and fries going to set you back? A burger and fries set you back almost 35 bucks. No, bloody hell. Yeah, with the drink. Yeah, it was pretty close. Uh, a The cheapest thing that we could find was like a $12 corn dog, you know, $5 water. So that, you're 17 there. I think it was close to 30 for a burger and, fri burger and fries, if you could find it. Yeah. Some of the lemonade stands were selling lemonade for almost eight. It, it was ridiculous. You have a captive audience. You could at least help you out there. But on the flip side, if you have your RV or a motorhome or a trailer or something like that, you are free to pass in and pass out all that you want. So you can go back to your RV and get another drink. You can go back and cook food and have lunch. It's up to you. So you can go in and out. So the other thing was interesting. Was there's no Moto America. Moto America Superbikes weren't there. There wasn't a North America Talent Cup race there. It was solely just a MotoGP weekend, which I enjoyed immensely just having that. And it's not because I don't like Moto America, not because I don't like watching the racing. There was just that bit of uh, downtime, mm -hmm. right? So there was a lunch break, which allowed us enough time to walk from where we were, pass out, go back to our motorhome and make lunch, have lunch, come back in and be semi-refreshed and do it again. It was just nice. That was very nice. I will say that that was nice. The bigger thing to me that, and this is the scary thing for me is, is that in the 10 odd years, MotoGP has been there. When we first showed up there, it was a track in the middle of nowhere. You could see Austin in the distance and that was pretty in the airport. And that was pretty much it. Housing developments, road construction have all infringed on this area as it is growing. Austin is one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. They need places to put everybody. And you could see, I don't know if you could see on your feed, the construction of all the apartment buildings that are around Coda that are just coming towards it. At some point, you got to think that these people are going to be upset that they're living next to this racetrack with the noise and then all of the people. 
better there. Mm. I haven't heard any rumblings about it yet, but there is there. Now, I know like last year, I think I complained about the roads not having being re-graveled so that you could walk normally on it. They were all rain rutted and things of that nature. It seems as though they have changed that. There's well, You can see where the fresh gravel had been put in so that you could easily navigate to and fro. And they'd done some infrastructure work that's there. They put up a couple of huge flagpoles, one for an American flag, one for the Texas flag. Yeah, they were huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess if you're if you're making that much money off food and drink, I guess you could put you know a couple tons of gravel down to help everybody out. So that's sort of the general idea of Coda um, for there. Although we did have weird weather. It was 79 overcast and absolutely brilliant on Friday. Saturday was 92, not a cloud in the sky, and you were sweating to death. And then the weather, the weather front came through and you, I was sitting at turn six with jeans, a jacket and my woolly hat because the wind was blowing so hard that I was so cold. I would have been miserable if I had not had any of that on. Wow. And that was, and it was like 82 degrees, but the wind was blowing. I don't know what it was blowing, 20 miles an hour constant, something like that. So it was very cold. Three seasons in one weekend. <laughs> Three seasons in one weekend. So, yeah, it's a great, I mean, I asked, I, I got to meet Dave Neal, former host of the show at the track. First time I've ever met him in person. And I asked him, I said, is this like a world-class circuit? My only comparison of like world-class circuit is Indy. Not that Indy is a great track for a motorcycle race or a, car, a road race just because it's inside of an oval. Yeah. We call it rovals here in America. But the way the facility was ran. Everybody who's taking tickets knows what to do. If you ask that person a ticket, they they know who where to, to point you, or they can call someone who will get you an answer for what you can and cannot do. You know, if there's rain overnight, guess what? There's no puddles because it's all been filled with mulch or birch or tree trimmings or um, you know whatever to soak it up. So you're not walking around in mud. You know, all that stuff is done and done well at Indy. And to me, that's world class, right? Mm. Indy has even in some of the weir- weirdest smallest areas, you can find a a building that has been built that is a big restroom. So it's a nice permanent facility. You don't have that anywhere but near the paddock and near the like the 15, 16, the was it 18, 17, 16 turns around there. You do have it there around the amphitheater and stuff like that. But I'm like, and Dave Nielsen, yeah, it's a world-class facility. It really is. I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> I think it's um, not, it's not a joke. It is a world-class facility, but just things that I would tweak if I, I owned it, but then I don't. And I, I know that the, the ground that they have is difficult to keep together and it slides and moves and that's the bumps and all that stuff. So yeah. there's a lot of issues with that, but that's, that's sort of the impression of Coda that I have from this year. It's just, to me, it was the lack of people because it was not nearly as crowded where we sit at turn six um, with our lawn chairs this year as it was last year. Now, just listening, you referred to a minute ago, this week's edition of Greg's Garage Pod. Now, he mentioned this and that it was a kind of grandstand ticket only deal this That's year. That's correct. So there were more people in the stands and on the banks. I suppose you chose to be on the banks, did you? Because you're a bit closer to the track. Yes. it's Okay. In the, When we got our tickets, there was no general admission ticket allowed. You had to buy a seat. Yeah. And I said, well, wait a second, hold on. I... I want to be sure that I understand this correctly. Like I will be able to take my lawn chair, walk inside, go wherever I want to go with that ticket and sit down and watch racing. Oh yes, sir. You can do that. Okay, great. Now to me, the track where the stands are is not that good. I mean, I guess sitting over there, but where they come from the back straightaway into 12 and watching them break. Yes, that's cool. But other than that, it's not what makes that track special. If you're on the backside where they're coming out of two and they're going through the S's and they go up seven, eight, nine on the backside. Yeah, that's where it's special. That's what makes that track that track. So that's where I want to be. So we did by ourselves or our own volition walk over there and sit down. Well, yes, the the stands were packed. Like the grandstand at 12 
in 12 was definitely a lot more people in that grandstand at turn 12 than there was the previous year. Yeah. I still don't think the number was as many people as last year. It might've been just a skosh less. Yeah. Because I mean, for whatever reason, Kota, and I think this is Kota, not Dorna, don't release the crowd attendance figures, or they certainly don't for MotoGP anyway. It's a Kota thing. Probably tells you everything that you need to know. It was the same in Silverstone last year. Very, very small crowd compared to what would have normally been the case. Now, yes, Marquez was out injured. Rossi had recently retired, blah, blah, blah. I know a few other things that were going on in the world of sport that perhaps distracted people away from Silverstone at the GP last year. But it, it was thin, for sure. And, you know, Silverstone and Coach, I think, are quite similar in the sense that, you know, they are big venues. I mean, they're long tracks, you know, huge acreage. So it's hard to make them look full. But you know, the problem MotoGP and Dorna have is that Kota will be ram-packed as Silverstone is going to be this year when the Formula One runs into town. Because I don't know about Kota, but Silverstone is capacity sold out. You cannot get a ticket now. And it's, the wait race is still months away yet. Kota's close to being, they're close to closing it out because I was I was trying to renew my tickets for MotoGP for next year. Uh, and there were some issues I had with that, which is a whole nother story. But they were saying that they had such heavy call volume and people trying to get tickets to Formula One. They, they've got a I don't think they could do more than about 200,000 people through the gate at Coda. I just, I don't think the facility could support it any more than that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure you're looking at probably 160 to 170,000 people will be there lined everywhere along the hillside for Formula One. Yeah. I, and I mean, this is Dawn's great challenge, isn't it? Is how do they, I mean, I don't think they'll ever replicate those sorts of numbers that Formula One get because Formula One is more mainstream than the motorcycle racing. I think that's just a, a fact of life. But there was this crazy suggestion that came up. I don't know if you picked up on this, Jim, or where it came from about possibility of F1 and MotoGP sharing race weekends. Oh, that was Bobby Epstein. Don't that was that Bobby happened. Epstein's thing. Yeah. Bobby Epstein is the guy who I think he's president and CEO of Coda. I believe that's, uh, I think that's his title. Either way, he is very high up in the food chain of the running of Coda. His concept was, well, hey, look, why don't we have the best of the world on two wheels and the best of the world on four wheels all show up and be here at the same weekend at the same time? Because this is a great spot because it's the only track that I can think of that has Formula One and motorcycles that you could use at the same time. You know, like the track wouldn't have to change because it's cars versus bikes. Yeah. Okay. I can't think of one. I can't think of one because I mean, like the street courses, you obviously couldn't do motorcycles on, right? I guess Silverstone was the only other one. Silverstone right? Silverstone's Silverstone legitimate, right? Okay, okay. so Silverstone. I, no, nothing else jumps off my head of, of Formula One tracks that are motorcycle tracks too, or mm. that MotoGP goes to. So I don't think it was tongue-in-cheek, but I think he said it as in, hey, if everybody's coming for the Formula One race, guess what? You can watch this motorcycle race too, and guess what? You're going to be hooked on it. Because if you watch if you watch the bikes there at Coda, you will be hooked on motorcycle racing. You just, you will. <laughs> There's no way around it. So then you could do it for a couple of years, then break it apart. Then these people would show up for the bike races and show up for Formula One. Yeah. I can't see it ever happening, but yeah, I don't, I don't see it happening either, but I'll share this too. It's sort of in that same vein. The idea that, you know, the whole idea here has been to do more for the fans, right? More access, more, more fan, more fan, more fan. Do this for the fans. Yeah, not when you're charging me 20 bucks to stand in the line to get an autograph from somebody who's going to bolt as soon as it's 501. Yeah. Which is what Coda was doing. Now, I I don't I don't know if Dorna required them to sell a ticket. I don't know if they decided to sell a ticket on their own. I wasn't going to have any part of that because I think that's wrong. But what I do remember about Indy was one year at MotoGP, they let you walk down pit road. Now, you were blocked off you could not get into the garages but you could get close to it and they did it for free it was like hey here you are you have two hours 
and you know, some teams brought bikes out and let you sit close by so you could see them. Their work was still going on. But what was great about that was it was the illusion of access that you can't have that you think that you have because you happen to be there. Yeah. Right. Coda had a track walk at the end where you could come in, but they limited you to the front stretch where the celebrations were. That's not a track walk, people. That's a track. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. But the other thing, too, I will mention just about the that was the sprint races for MotoGP. Oddly, there was a little bit of a buzz on Saturday about it. I felt a little bit of a buzz there because there was something meaningful that was going to happen on Saturday that wasn't qualifying. So there, there, there's a little buzz about it. There is a little buzz there. I mean, I think this sprint race was a little bit predictable yeah. and it wasn't as good as the other ones that we we've seen, right? The chaos is not there right now, but there is a little bit of a buzz. There was definitely far more people there Saturday afternoon because that race is there than there were previously. Saturday was a blank day last year and the years prior because it was done. You know, after qualifying, it was done and everybody went away. Now, I on the flip side, because you had sprint races on Sunday morning, there's no Moto3 or Moto2 warm up. So suddenly there is a big blank of nothing. With one hand, they giveth and with the other hand, they taketh away. <laughs> right. Sunday morning, you were in there waiting till I think it was like 945 or something, 930. Maybe and there's 15 minutes of warm up for MotoGP. That's over and done with. And then it's this big huge break where I'll, I'll have to send you the picture and maybe get Lynn to put it up on the website of the of MotoGP riders on a flatbed trailer being pulled by a big huge Peterbilt tractor. Okay, we do things bigger in Texas than the U.S. I get it, but the only people who could get near the riders were the corner workers who were standing there when they went by. Everybody else is still way the hell away. And it was just lame. Lame. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, I'd rather see Moto3 warm up and Moto2 warm up than see that truck ride, driving those guys around. And I thought for a little bit that they were going to take the shortcut and cut back through after they'd been through roughly about turn six as a shortcut to get to shorten the track into two halves and not go all the way out to like 11. Nope, they went all the way out to 11 and there's nobody out there. <laughs> Because there's no amenities, so no I'm one's sure the there. riders like, would rather be somewhere else as well, rather than... I think Fabio pretty much nailed it, because I don't know if you saw it, but he was Instagram-living while he was on the truck, because there was nothing to do, because they were back on the backside, heading from 11 to 12. Mm. Ridiculous. No, I, I think it's a, a terrible mistake getting rid of the warm-ups. And actually, um, I haven't actually thought of this, but, and again, you probably heard this as well, but Jason Pridmore made the very, very salient point that if you've, I don't know, thrown an engine at the end of Q2 on the Saturday in a Moto2 bike, for example, so you've bolted a new engine in overnight or you've had a big crash and they've had to substantially rebuild the bike, you get basically get no time to go out and check, do a systems check on it before the race. Yeah, okay, you get a sighting lap, but, you know, that's... Well, technically, you can do as many sighting laps as you want in the time from when pit opens to pit close. True, but it's not a warm-up, though. It's not like warm-up. I wholeheartedly agree with you, but, yeah, and the thing of it is, too, given the weather changes that you had, I think it was a bit sketchy, to be the Moto3 guys and Moto2 guys trying to figure out the wind. But yeah. if you had a morning warm, you would at least have some time to work yourself into what the wind was doing. Because I guess they might have had to change some gear ratios in some of the classes. I'm sure they would have had to have changed gearing because they were getting pushed down the backstretch. Yeah. So I, I hope it's something that Dawn would look at again. Because I just think, you know, as you say, Jim, just watching bored riders wasting an hour on a big track like that, trundling around to people that can't really see them because they're stood so far away. What's the? I just don't see the point of it. I mean, it's just trying to copy Formula One. And I'm not even sure it's particularly great in Formula One, to be honest. But at least you've got, yeah. more often than not, you've got packed crowds wherever on the track you are on the 
the bus or the truck or the trailer or whatever it is, but it just doesn't seem to work uh, for me in MotoGP. I mean, I'm interested to know what other people think. Okay, Dorna are trying something different. I applaud them for that, but hopefully they'll take stock of what I perceive to be almost uh, negative comments across the board on this one and, you know, bring back some warm-up time. I, I just really I think agree. they should I just put it on a safety ground apart from anything else. I agree with you. I, I wasn't happy about it because I'm sitting there for no reason. Yeah, I mean, you go there to watch bikes turning laps, don't you? Okay, I know warm-ups, you know, you can argue that they're not necessarily out there pushing fully to the maximum stuff, but nevertheless, you still get to see some action, and I'd rather mm-hmm. that than, yeah, watching an empty track most of the time. Yep. Right, let's quickly rifle through Moto3 qualify. I'm going to try and do this, I guess, in reasonable order. Okay. So, I mean, nothing too much to say about Q1 and Q2. The riders that went through Q1 were Artigas, Azuma, I think it was, Salvador and Yamanaka. There was a big crash early on for the young lad Almanza, who was such a star in Argentina. He had a nasty high side, I think, so he didn't get through. Likewise, Moto3 uh, Q2, quite a few crashes, actually. Munoz went down. Not sure if you saw any of these, Jim. Sit your finger up if uh, any of these happened in front of you, because I know okay. a lot of crashes did. But uh, Munoz went down, Holgado went down, uh, Toba went down, and then... Sasaki got held up on one of his really quick laps, although he did pull out a lap right at the very, very end to get himself second on the grid. So as it all shook out pre-race, it was Masia on the pole. That Leopard always seems to go well at Circuit of the Americas. Uh, Masia, Sasaki or Tola, who were thinking, all right, all right, you know, he's been showing quite well, actually, over the course of about the last 12 months, I would say, but certainly has been looking strong this year. Uh, Marrera, Hogardo, Nepa, Yamanaka, a couple of other notable names in there. Suzuki, okay, so-so. Bernati actually popped up in the top 15, which was the first time we've really seen anything of him. Where did Ortola qualify at? Uh, third. So he was, uh, yeah, solidly on the front row. So uh, you were there, Jim. I mean, Moto3 qualifying, anything particular that caught your eye? Ortola did. Because, I mean, he had been fast from practice. You know, from Friday, Ortola was always at the top. And I'm like, wow, what's he got going on? And I thought it might have been like a fluke, kind of like weather kind of thing. But then he showed it in qualifying that he was third, which surprised me i'm like one of the things about artola was artola was sneaky fast because where we were in the s's and stuff he looked slow but he wasn't it, it was one of those things where it's the slow down to go fast concept and he had it mastered or at least for qualifying he had it mastered i was really impressed by artola um the other guys is like you kind of expected the the leopards to be where they were and yeah. then you knew the flood of ktms were going to be behind that so you know the, the that liar to me was just artola just how well he did it's just you know he like I said, from the beginning, Ortola was fast. And one of the things Ortola was very fast at, and you could see it in practice, was coming down out of one through two. There's a very bad bump just before you want to kind of tip it into two. And Ortola was very well set up to go through there. He would come in and he would just kind of feather the gas off a little bit and then just roll it on and slowly accelerate through. He would put distance on people through there. Mm-hmm. It, that was interesting. That I mean, it just stuck out and you know during all that. So that's what I had from qualifying. Okay, let me just quickly jump into Moto2 qualifying because I'm okay. sort of doing this as, as things okay. happened. All right. I think it was in the morning practice. Darren Binder went down really hard coming yes. out of turn one. So that kind of yes. put him out. Was he out for the whole weekend from there on? I think he, uh, got, I think he was. I think he got pretty badly uh, bashed yeah. up, didn't he? Uh, there are a few big names stuck in key one. Uh, both the speed ups are in there. Yeah, the speeds were having a terrible time with the bumps. I don't know if it, their chassis are stiff, but you could just watch. The other thing about a speed up versus a Kalex that I could see was in the S's. The K, the the speed ups want to push, 
they, they're pushing the front. They, mm-hmm. Their line has to be wider. They can come in tight, but then they arc themselves out where the everybody who's got a calyx can just cut that back, forth, back, forth and maintain the racing line that you would normally think of through those areas. But the Bosca cores are always wide or they're wide on entry into the corner because they can't turn. They're like the Ducati of Moto2, right? It doesn't turn. Yeah. If they could fix that part of it, wow, they'd be something to see. But yeah, the bumps upset their chassis tremendously. Most of the KLXs just go across the bumps and there's not a big deal. But you can definitely see the Bosca cores struggling way more. And they also were kind of struggling a little bit on acceleration out of the corners. They weren't able to get the grip required from the back either. So they were floundering around. Hmm. Interesting. Whether that was some early setup issues that they had, because obviously things did come a bit better for them. They were working on it because you could see the progress they were making. Yeah. But at the beginning, this is what I saw. And then and that sort of explains where they were in qualifying. And I think they finally figured it out there to the race, or it's just one of those things where you're just going to go for it and you're either going to bend it or you're going to win it. Yeah. And you try to ride around it. If you remember, Jim, we were talking about Lopez back in the Argentina round. You know, it looked like he was going wide all the time, but it's just the yeah. line that the bike needs it's to be ridden. It's just the line the bike needs. And it's very, very evident if you stand there at the S's and watch it because you have another, yeah, the Calyxes are right there and it just, hey, cover that. Yeah. Because they would, they would get cut up kind of coming through six, heading to seven. Yeah. So Interesting. It was, it was very easy to see. So through Q1 was Boben Schneider, Chantra, I think, was through, Aldegar and Lopez. So the Bosque Series did make it through Q1. And then quickly going into Q2, the standout rider, sort of doing a bit of an autola, I suppose, but in Moto2 was Philip Salach on the yeah. Grassini Moto2 bike. I mean, he was looking great all weekend. Sam Lowe's went down, Baltus went down, although Baltus was having a pretty decent weekend. Your man Acosta just looked solid all weekend, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, okay, a little note on Acosta. I made sure, because he is my man, yeah. to watch. And one of the things Acosta was doing, and I could not find another Moto2 rider who was doing this, and I made sure to stay put long enough. Acosta would come into one. He was late on the brakes, and he was actually, the bike, the back end was off the ground. He was riding up the hill on the front end. So he, he's he got that front end stability and feel. If he's riding up the hill like that, He's got what he had when he had his Moto3 bike. He's got the IO has sort of made that frame work for him in that way. But the really unique thing was he would come out of turn one, cover down the hill, and then he would bang two gears real close to each other. And then he would, from that point forward, he'd start his tip in at two. And it was a constant motion. You could watch his right wrist just slowly turn the gas on the whole way through the corner. Now, other guys were coming over the hill, shorting one, taking a little stretch, taking a second and then going in, but Acosta did them both right together. He had minimal upsetting of the chassis at that point, which was perfect because then he he was the only one who could really ride across the bump just before the apex of two. He could ride across there and nobody else could. Everybody else was out water. Acosta was able to go tighter and he would, and he, and he was able to carry the momentum and the speed through there better than anybody else at that time. Now, the other thing that Acosta had was some serious straight line speed on the back straightaway. You could, I know there's a draft and I know they're being pulled along, but Acosta's bike was fast in a straight line as well. I don't know how much work KTM can do to the bodywork of the bike. I don't know who, if it's one person making it and everybody has the same bodywork or you're free to do what you want within the reason of the rules, like no aerodynamic devices, things like that. I yeah. understand, but it seemed like his bike or just, or he's just able to tuck in much tighter to the bike, but he was, he was 
definitely quick. And it, it shocked me he wound up second. I really thought he had pole. Yeah, well, uh, Vietti taking the pole. I mean, nobody really saw that nobody, one coming, yeah. did they? No. Uh, I mean, I can't really quite get my head around it still. Well, I think he was on pole last year. Uh, yeah, but bearing in mind what happened in the second half of last year, he hasn't exactly yeah. been jumping off the page, you know, impressing anybody this year so far, has he? So it was just a right. surprise, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, Sunday, everything went back to normal. Yes. <laughs> Maybe he's a bit <laughs> of a coater specialist because there are a few of them out there, as we know. Yeah, there are. There seems to be. Yeah, there does seem to be. What it is about coater? Um just going back to what you said about Acosta, I mean, this is what I love about being trackside because those are the things you can very, very rarely determine from TV footage. Yeah, yeah, okay, if you get a decent on board, you'll hear the short shift and stuff, but there's nothing like being trackside really for spotting no. the little mm. these little details, which make yes. a big difference overall for sure. Yeah, yeah. So Moto two qualifying mid round out as we just said, Vietti on the pole, uh, Acosta surprisingly in second place, Salach continued his good form in third, and then. Bo Ben Schneider, who had just lost his grandfather, I think, a day or so yeah. beforehand. Which so yep. whether he was running on pure emotion, you know, as well as adrenaline. But fair play, fourth place. Lopez Dixon, sixth place. Although that would come to nothing. Canet Arbelino, Gonzalez, Alcoba putting in a good show and starting to show the form that I think we've expected to come uh, in Moto Two. Now, for some reason. And I can't think why. And very embarrassedly, I either didn't write any notes for MotoGP Q1 and Q2, or I've lost the page because I don't have any notes. But the, the headline for me, really, just overall from Q1 and Q2 with MotoGP was Alex Rins in second place, I think he was on the grid. Uh, I believe so, yeah. He qualified second. Yeah, so Banyaya qualified pole. Rins was second. Marini making up for being overshadowed by his teammate at the previous round came in on third on the grid. That's the outliers, Marini. Like, I would have never put Marini there. Right. But if you were standing there and you watched it, it was like, it's again, it's that sneaky fast, which, okay, a side note here, just because these are observations that come to me from being at the side of the track. The Ducati is such an amazing package. Everything works in complete and total harmony and you can watch it actually do its thing. One of the best places to see where this thing was working so well was we were standing Saturday in the heat. We were standing up by nine, nine to ten. And so many people would come out of that because it's a difficult corner because you have nine is before just before 10, which is the blind at the crest of the hill and then down to 11. Downhill, so yeah. you're, 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 you're coming uphill. So by coming uphill, the road is cambered away from you. But at the apex of nine, you're going uphill, then immediately back downhill because the road falls off the other way. So you have this like hump that you have to go over in the middle. That would upset everybody's bike to some extent, but the Ducatis were the least upset by it. And so consequently, Ben Yaya and everybody would come in there. They could hold a tighter line and they weren't on the rumble strip curves going up and having the bike upset where you got to be on the throttle the whole time to go over 10. Probably the next best bike through all that was probably Aprilia. And they didn't, they wouldn't, they didn't get as upset. The Honda was horrible. <laughs> you know, Rin somehow would just hang on to it because he would be on the curb and the back end's bouncing around. Somehow Rin's just, would I don't know, sheer will. I don't know, fear of God, dying. I think, take your pick. <laughs> I, I would have been out of the throttle like 400 feet ago, but he's just flying pinned. through there. Yeah. Yeah. Just pinned. But it was really amazing to watch at that point and see just how good of a package Gigi Dominion and his crew have created for that. Now, a lot of it, I think, has to do is with the mass dampener they still have in the back of that bike because you could go you could almost watch it just sort of straighten itself out 
you know, kind of like if you if you ever had a bicycle wheel in your hands and you spin it, and you try to move it. It's got that gyroscopic effect, and it wants to come. It wants to come back to center. Yeah, it's almost like the whole harmonic of the bike just settles back out because the the weight up in the seat sort of just settles it down, and it just and it's it's just beautiful. I don't think everybody else maybe has one, but they don't have one that's as integrated into the package, right? I think we talked about that before. Like everything is that chassis is a decent chassis, but everything is all together working perfectly. Yeah. And it was on fine display at Coda because of all the bumps and every, all the elevation and everything that's there in the great viewing positions you can get to if you're willing to walk. It was amazing just to see how good that was. The KTMs are probably third best over the bumps. Interesting, Jim, what you're saying is you're basically given the league table of the bikes that have probably got the best of the worst downforce with all it's the air on true, the bikes. Yeah. And that must play a part. It must play a part. It does play a part in it as well. Quattro was fast through there because the Yamaha handles really well, but there's no power. Because you have such long straightaways, there's so much drag created by the aerodynamic devices that you have all over the bike that there's not enough power to push it through. You know, Ducati probably has the most motor, which KTM is probably the second quickest bike now. I think they've overtaken Aprilia. And the fact of the matter is, we talked about this because Rich and I were chatting on WhatsApp during the whole race weekend. So yeah. <laughs> we were kind of talking our own private conversation most of the weekend. But the KTMs sound almost identical to the Ducati now. If you turn around and you're listening and you can't see the bikes coming, the only two that you can basically pick out are the Honda because it's got that weird screech that is just a Honda. Yeah. And you can pick out the Yamaha because it's the odd four cylinder. So the note is completely different. You used to be able to figure the KTM used to be like ear splittingly loud. Raucous. It was a kind of, it was just like, it sounded like it was trying to eject springs and cams and (laughs) valves out of it because they were pissed that they were inside of this thing. (laughs) I mean, it's I'm sorry. It's just the way that it sounds. But this year you could not tell the difference between an Aprilia Ducati and a KTM. They're so close in sound. If they were running together, you definitely could pick it out. But if you have a Honda running with a Ducati, you can pick the Honda over the Ducati. You you can differentiate the sound. I know I don't have the world's greatest hearing because I work in a machine environment and all that. But still, it's very very notable that these things sound very close to each other. So, Mm. again, I don't know what KTM pulled off with electronics. I don't know if they're – it's just a firing order thing that they've changed again per se, but whatever it is, they surely still have pushed down the straightaways to go with it. It it was just odd. You, know? you talking about Marina's bike looking so planted might give, without jumping ahead too far, but might give some credence to Banyaya's comments on Sunday about the bike's now too yes. good. <laughs> you know. Yes, we'll have to talk about that as well. Because yeah. that was a strange one. Uh, the other one to pick out across the whole of the weekend, again, without jumping too far forward, but he'd already been down probably three times at this point. It was Jack Miller who... yeah. I think over the course of the weekend, went down six times. I mean, I think Something on WhatsApp, like that. I commented too. I was wondering if they were running out of fairings for him. because uh, They might know. have been. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but he was always on the ground. Because it was windy and stuff. You, you do wonder with the aero and stuff, there's probably even more of a fine line now than there was before. And it probably doesn't take much just to step over the mark. I, but that being an aerodynamicist, I don't know. I don't know. Again, I'm going to go back to the fact that when they went to, to Phil, back to Phillip Island, and it's kind of like, the first time they kind of been back with like all the arrow on there, there was actually, they had dispensation for the rules to put bodywork on that had no aerodynamics on it. And they tried it. All the riders tried it that way. And they all went back to having the aerodynamics because it felt better. It actually felt more stable to them. Mm. Like, Phillip Island and Coda are completely different circuits, but they are fast and, and windy, but you know, they're both got that for whatever reason they have the wind. And I'm not so sure that the aerodynamics are the problem. 
I think the aerodynamics are taking away the feel the rider has for where the front tire is. I think the aerodynamics are, are masking when the tire is getting ready to give up. There's grip, there's feel, there's, oh, it's going, and now it's gone. Mm. It's now it's just, there's grip, and oh, it's gone. Because the arrow is pushing the thing into the ground, I, I think. I think we're saying sure. the same thing, Jim. That's exactly Probably my point. Are. It might just be like a little gust of wind. Well, you know, a gust of wind, of which we know that was an issue on Sunday in particular. That just tips that line where, as you say, it's you don't have that feel. It just goes. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not an aerodynamicist. That could be what's wrong with Marquez. Because remember how Marquez always said, well, there's a ledge, but there's an edge after the ledge. And then he's riding over there. Yeah. Because he knew when the bike was going to give up. And that's a whole nother conversation because that's, yeah, we maybe we got to shelve that for a little, for a second till we get to the race. Let's just quickly pick up on second row on the grid, just very quickly, was Alex Marquez. Uh, Marco Bezzecchi was in fifth and Alicia Spargro, first of the Aprilias. So, yeah, now Moto GP sprint. Yeah. A hell of a first lap, really. Yes. Banyar and Rins were straight at it. I mean, this was the story oh, yeah. of the weekend, wasn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Rins was all over it. I mean, I was shocked that Rins had qualified second. I'm, I'm sorry. I know Rins is a good rider. It was a total, total surprise. surprise. It was yeah. just like, whoa, where did I don't understand how that happened, but okay. You know, again, I'll use the Kenny Roberts Jr. line. Well, anybody can ride a piece of shit fast enough for one lap. I'm, so I'm like, okay, Renz just put in a stunning qualifier to put it there. He doesn't have any kind of staying power whatsoever to stay with him. And then, boom, we go to the sprint, right? And these guys are running through, and it's Ben Yaya and Renz. I'm like, I'm expecting Renz to fall off here. You know, not not fall off, but like, you know, his pace to, to drop off. And, you know, Renz is probably one of the, the fastest guys through all the S's. The Ducatis are a little slow in the S's because, again, they can't flip it side to side as fast. Because I think more because to do were the masses with the L the L shape that they use in their V4. Mm. But I don't I think the mass is wrong and it doesn't want to rotate as easily, right? But the Honda does. It wants to rotate easier. So does the Yamaha. But those two guys were just on each other. And I'm like, okay, this is where my attention was. Is like this is the race. I'm not too sure what's happening everywhere else. But I was watching those two guys. And I kept thinking, my gosh, Renz is still right there. I'm like, well, okay, you know, I gave him, eh, you know, it's gonna fall off here. Tire's gonna go away a little bit. Can't spin the Honda that fast and be this and sure enough he was there the whole time you know now pecco did ride an incredible race to win and rins was second which was i thought was okay well that's the little miracle that's going to happen this weekend and rins was able to hang on to it because the guys behind him were coming because because rins did fall off a little bit from ben yaya right jim did you have a big screen where you were to follow the rest Not of the on race saturday on... okay on sunday we were in front of a screen where we could watch there was a screen for us to look at on Saturday, but it was impossible really to see it that well um, because it was very far away from where we were positioned. Right. Because one of the things I was going to say, which you might not have seen, was certainly in the early laps, just the sheer difference in the grunt down that back straight between Ducati and and Rins. Oh, we could see that. That was Rins, (laughs) as we would find out the next day, was all over him through the twisties, as you just said. And then Banyai was gapping like 30, 40 yards down that back straight. And it did lead Rins into a mistake in the sprint race where he went wide at the end of the back straight. And that dropped him, kind of dropped him out of contention and gave Banyar enough of a gap, I think, that he could become comfortable and we haven't become accustomed to him falling off of late although again we'll come back to that notion in a minute so it was a relatively straightforward win for him i suppose in the end yeah after that race we're walking we get back to the rv because it was 92 degrees it was stoking hot we got into the air conditioning sat down i said well boys i said tomorrow's race for these guys is going to be boring because then is going to have half of a back straight or more on by the time this race is over. That is what I told everybody. Yeah, I'm me. Little I'm did I, little did I yeah. know what was going to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what Martin was third, I think, in the sprint race. And then it was Aleish and uh, Bender. 
and then Bezeki. Now, I yeah. don't really know where those guys, how those guys were doing. I know Bender's a Saturday guy now, so he rode up from his low starting position to get there. Again, the KTMs have some speed. I think Miller fell off and then got back on again. That's the finish, correct. I believe. The big news was Quattro going down. Yeah, Quattro tossed that one away. He tucked it on the front going up into one. And no matter what you want to say, that is tricky because of going uphill. And it's very steeply uphill. <laughs> and television flattens that hill tremendously. It looks steep on the telly. It's, it is very, very steep. And then the worst part is, is that they're still trying to trail break over the little hump to where it goes flat. So Quattraro, if you watch the replay of it, Quattraro is going in there. You know he's on the trail end of it, of the braking. He gets over the hump. The suspension unloads that little bit. It reloads the front. And again, the Michelin goes squishy on him. And Quattraro has got the elbow in. And it, it, he has it dug in. And he's trying to push it back up. And it doesn't work. And pff, it's done. Yeah. And he couldn't get it back. Again, you wonder if they had a Bridgestone front with Quattraro have crashed. We'll never know. I'm not blaming Michelin here, people. Because I honestly think that Michelin can build a better tire. Now, the conspiracy theorist in me says that Dornan doesn't want them to have a better front tire because they're trying to keep the speeds in check. Mm. Ooh, that's another thing, Rich. I, because we're talking, well, it's just randomly throwing stuff in here. I'm sorry, guys. It's disjoint podcast. But these are <laughs> what happens. Every time a bike fell, it almost always made it to it, the air fence or the fence or the tire fence in MotoGP. No matter where it was, it almost yeah. always made it all the way to the fence. That's ridiculous. And we're seeing it more and more, uh, all the tracks. I, every track. Yeah. You know, I thought Porto Mayo was that way. It's a small, tight track. Not a lot. Of, you know, the first time I went to Coda, and you look at it, you think, wow, there is a lot of runoff here. Now that a lot of runoff, in quotes, is now getting really small. Yeah. No, it's Real a small. concern. But if Donna wanted to do something about speeds, they could immediately ban, you know, the shapeshifter on the back. But they don't, the, the squatting device easily to start it. it start with, you know, particularly they, they, they as two know. people crash because of faulty shapeshifters on Sunday. Really, which come I didn't know that. I did yeah. not know that. Oh, okay. All right. So, did we cover the sprint race? I'm sorry. I'm jumping around on everybody here. The sprint race one. actually was compared to the two that we've had so far was a relatively not mundane. That would be not quite the right word, but it was a much more controlled. Now, whether that's partly to do with the fact that Cota's great big circuit very wide it was dry conditions it wasn't sketchy as we saw in argentina for example but it was less action-packed than the two that we've had so far i think it would be fair to say one bizarre thing and i I hadn't quite got to the bottom of this but alex marquez crashed at the end of the back straight and i'm sure somebody on one of the podcasts said that he vomited into his crash helmet and that's what caused him to crash so i'm assuming he was ill with something food poisoning or something over the course of the weekend i don't know what he was ill from i know jorge martin was ill yes he sort of had the flu or something of that a fever yeah so i i don't know if that was part of it literally it could have been the fact that it, that that day you're at 92 degrees, you were at 78 or something the day before with all overcast and very cool. Now suddenly you're in the heat. Your body sometimes doesn't like to adjust that quickly between temperatures. I don't know if that played some into it. You know, a bit of an episode stomach on a rough, bumpy track is not going to go over well to mm. begin with. I mean, so anything's possible. But yeah, he vomited in his helmet. That is really very unpleasant. It is unpleasant. So not that it's really too worthwhile mentioning it, but... As of the end of the sprint race, we had Bezeki on 54 points and then Banyar one point behind. Uh, then Zarco, then Alex Marquez, who had a really very unfortunate weekend, all things told Alex Marquez. But 
luckily for me, I'd binned him off my fantasy league team for the weekend, which I thought was not a good idea at the time that I did it, but I pressed make the trade and then thought, oh dear, I shouldn't have done that. But as it turned out, yeah, I did myself a favour there. The other thing that was just, I, I meant to mention from the sprint race uh, was Vinales' customary start. He went from 7th yeah. to 18th on the first lap. Now, the word coming out of Aprilia was that he had clutch troubles, but whether that's genuinely a bike issue or whether that's operator issue, don't know. But I'm losing faith again in Maverick. Yeah, I mean, Maverick, he's so quick, and yet he just cannot seem to get a bike off the line. And it's been like this for years. It was the same on the Yamaha as well towards the end. If it's me, if I'm Aprilia, I want Oliver on that bike next year. Mm, I agree. I mean, you know, honor Maverick's contract and just put him in the RNF squad to here we'll give you the factory bike but you're just not riding here yeah it's well, disappointing again tangent stuff but you and i were having a speculation exchange on whatsapp weren't we about the two empty slots on the grid yes and what might happen maybe we'll pick that up later on or in another yeah, show but, yeah, um, closer or something. yeah okay so let's get into sunday then so as we've already discussed uh, regrettably no warm-up sessions apart from the very short moto gp one was it, i didn't see that jim because uh, i was busy it during... goes by so fast there's really yeah. nothing that happens in it it's... somebody crashed more bedelli go down in the warm-up. i think morbidelli did crash to be honest with you but yeah that was it and then you know hey everything was done and the track was quiet for about two and a half hours until we got to uh 11 o'clock i think yeah. 11 o'clock local time was was moto three so moto three interestingly probably for me wasn't the best race of the weekend this time really which is unusual i do i strongly disagree with you sir okay well that's interesting i, strong, I strongly disagree with you my point is that there was a headline aspect of the moto three race and it comes in the form of our friend ortolu we were congratulating yeah. for getting onto the front row of the grid so I don't know if you saw this, Jim, from where you were on the Sunday then, but Ortola had the mother and father of all near high sides coming out of turn oh, yeah. one on the first lap. We I mean, how it. the hell he stayed on it is just... No I idea. Mean, I think you have to put that down to luck as much as judgment, don't you? But what was your <laughs> what did you make of that? Because it was a vicious snap. Uh, cold tire, too much, too fast, and maybe a little bit of wind to help. I mean, it was, you know... It was insane that Ortola was actually off. And then Ortola was, by time, you know, we could see it. I didn't know it was Ortola at the time. I only knew it once everybody went by. And I'm like, Ortola's not in the top five or so. Oh, wait a minute. That's Ortola back there. So Ortola's dead last. I mean, yeah, it was way down into the 20s as a result of that. <laughs> it was dead first last. First lap incident, yeah. And at that point, yeah, you think, well, that's he's toast now. There's no way he's going to be able to get back from that, even with the whole race in front of him. But, well, I mean, I suppose you can tell the story because you must have been absolutely just gunning for him and just watching his progress aghast from trackside, I would imagine. Yeah, we were watching that. I said, well, what? I said, I thought, okay, Ortola's got a shot at the top 10. Maybe get up a little higher, maybe get into the you know, a top six, something like that, because I really expected the front guys to check out. But the front guys were all together, but they definitely were not checking out, which is the thing that you, re- I really thought that they were going to do. The thing was that after, I think it was five, six laps, I don't know where the lap count is. Suzuki has the mother of all high sides right in front of us. He destroyed that Moto3 bike. Yeah. I think he trashed the forks and either broke the triple tree or bent the, or broke the forks. I'm not sure which. Ripped, the swing arm was definitely toast. And it knocked the rear tire off the rim. It unseated the tire off the rim. <laughs> it took four corner workers, picked it up, 
and literally just brought this hunk of junk and dropped it into a trailer because that was going, you might as well have just taken that thing and thrown it in the dumpster and left it and just put it to the scrap heap because it was done. Yeah. Total. uh, Total. That part was really good. But then it was like, uh, there was that bit of fighting that was going on, but Masia had kind of taken up the mantle of Suzuki, right? So the Leopard was there. Now the advantage that Leopard had, we've always talked about how the Leopard bikes are a missile in a straight line. I don't think they're a missile in the straight line anymore. They're fast. I'm not going to deny you. But the KTMs have found even a little bit more. And they're they're even, if anything else. Mm. So that was interesting. But what was was weird was Anchu going backwards for a while. And then he kind of raced his way back up to the front. So I'm kind of, kind of watching Ortola and Anchu. And then, well, okay, Ortola gets by halfway. Ortola's gotten to like Anchu. So I think Anchu was running around. I don't know. I want to say somewhere in that, like inside the top 10 there somewhere and i thought oh okay here it is Anchu's just gonna latch onto ortola because i think ortola is going to the front but what shocked me too was the guys out front were cutting each other up all the time like usually in a moto three race they kind of settle themselves in and they're like okay we're just gonna sit here and we're gonna just run away from five six seven eight right that didn't happen for the longest time because they just kept cutting each other up and everybody wanted a piece of the action out front i don't know if it was related to the draft with them being pushed so much by the wind that they really couldn't slow down. They sort of had to kind of go f- with it, right? There's there's times when you're on the bike and you're in the draft. There's like, you, you know, I've got to go outside here and break my own wind because I'm not going to make that corner because I'm being pushed along or towed so violently that it's there. So I think a lot of that maybe played into this, that they're all sort of still together. And then the people that we've always talked about, the, the up and coming, the Holgardo, Morera, they fell out. They didn't fall off, but they were in the back part. They were in that lower section. They were in that five, six, seven, eight range. Yeah. And they weren't, I thought, okay, well, these guys are saving the tire and they're going to come here at the end. And then all of a sudden, here just, boom, here comes Ortola. Just like, you're going, wait a minute, Ortola is now here? Like, how did that happen? And once Ortola showed up, the mood changed out front. Because I think... Masia thought he was just going to be him and sort of maybe Morera and Holgardo at yeah. the front. And they were going to kind of settle this themselves. I was like, as soon as he got there, Ortola went to the front and he was leading. And I think, oh, okay, wait a minute. Oh, we got to get serious now showed up. Because I think he got there with eight to go or something close to that. I mean, I think there might have been 10. Well, I'm just looking at my notes. To go. I'm not sure where well, I'm not sure where it was. It seemed like he got there quick. Let's put I'd made way. a note that with eight laps to go, and I'm trying to think how many laps the race was. I can't think it of was the top 12. Of my head, but it's a really short but it's such a long track it isn't it so yeah they took no they took two laps off of it this year and they took two laps off the moto too because they had to have yeah. the parade right okay let's okay we'll, we'll... okay let's just move <laughs> shove that yeah <laughs> no need to rehash that problem with eight to go it was sasaki out front at this point although obviously that as you said they were chopping and changing a fair bit masia marrera holgado artigas and at that point ortola was in sixth position okay, and so... i'm thinking he must have cooked his tire to get back to the front mm-hmm. group that quick mm-hmm but, I mean, the next sort of major headline thing that happened was that... Sasaki falls. Sasaki goes down. And, again, I'm afraid this is a little bit of a kind of repeating thing, that he does tend to crash out of good positions a bit too often. So he went down, and unfortunately, he took Masia. Well, he didn't take Masia out with him, but he sent Masia way wide. Way wide. In avoidance. That was really the problem. And at that point, I think he dropped at least two probably three seconds behind that lead now group of four. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, there's no way Masia can get back. Uh, but within half a lap, he was back on him. I just couldn't. Because Ortola jumped to the front. Yeah. So the rest of the lap, the chopping went, because Ortola went to the front. And then Masia wound up catching him back up again. So that was impressive that 
he got back there as quick as he did. And then it was the person you didn't expect to be there at the end was Artigas. Like, yeah. I missed that. I missed how Artigas got there, but also like, whoa, wait a second. Artigas is actually here too. And then it became, you know, it was the all everything for the final couple of laps. It was just, I thought it was just great racing. It was just great, you know, cutting each other up and, you know, people making passes where you, you shouldn't make a pass and doing it and pulling it off, which I thought was fantastic. I mean, it was classic Moto3. Oh, I mean, of that, there's no doubt. A lot of mistakes three. going on down at the end of the back straight, again, because of the tailwind, I yeah. suspect. And a lot I think of cutting up. Thing. I think that probably did help Portola, as you say, in terms of getting back onto that lead pack. I just didn't see it as like one of those absolute barnstormer races that we've kind of become accustomed to in Moto3. But I mean, it was all about the last lap, as Moto3 mm-hmm. inevitably is. And as you say, Artigas was in front at one point on the last lap. I think everybody was at front at one point in the last lap. Big melee in the last corner, as you would expect. And yep. yeah, out of it all comes Ortola to get his and that team's first win. So I, I don't know how long Ortola's been in the championship. Probably a couple of seasons. I think it's maybe. a couple of seasons. Yeah, but... I mean, we haven't seen that Autola before. No. Mm-mm. You know, the light started to shine a bit at certain rounds last year. I remember he was good at Silverstone last year. I think he might have got taken out or he took somebody out. But yeah, I mean, just like, wow, that was kind of Pedro Costa Qatar level performance for me, which is sort of yeah. high praise indeed if you're comparing it to that one. So yeah, it rounded out. Autola won the race. Masia was second, which was a great recovery. Uh, Artigas just sneaked over the line into third. Like, literally, you know, fag papers with uh, between him and Moreira. Holgado never really looked like the guy that was going to win the race, but came in solidly in fifth. And then Onchu had crept up to sixth by that point, which was a bit of a surprise to see him. But part of that, I think, was in and around the fact that our friend David Munoz did one of his um, dive bomb specials in the last lap and took himself and Nepa, Ortona's teammate, unfortunately. So kind of mixed fortunes in that garage, I suppose. So that took Munoz out of proceedings. So And then we had Salvador, David Alonso, another Alonso, Yamanaka, young uh, Jose Maria Rueda, who kind of came through reasonably okay towards the end. Toba, uh, I think Aji via Scott Ogden came in 14th, which was, you know, okay, pretty good. He hadn't had, he was losing so much down the back straight. It was just ridiculous. So, I mean, he is one of the bigger riders, but uh, yeah, I, I, they were having problems with power. I, I'm convinced they were having problems with power. Anyway, Ricardo Rossi rounded out the point scorers in 15th place. So, but you, you, that was your race of the weekend, was it, Jim? Yeah, I like that one. Now, see, I, I mean, I love when you come from behind like that far and you win. That's really cool. The other cool part is Zartolo rides with the same number I rode with. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, just yeah. an oddity. New fanboy. But, <laughs> yeah, nah, you know, fanboy. They got to have fanboys in each one. So I like Zartolo just because of the number more than anything else. But I'm like, I hope we can continue this. I think it'd be a great dark horse winner of a world championship. You know, I think it'd be great. Yeah. We still don't have any clue about who's going to step up and take this championship yet. Well, Sasaki, who was red hot favorite going into the season, has had a poor two races there, hasn't he? I mean, there's no way around that. So, I mean, if we just look at the championship quickly after round three. So we've got still uh, Danny Holgado, well, sharing the lead in actual fact with Diego Moreira. So they're both on 49 points. And then we've got, uh, yeah, Chavi Artigas in third place. I mean, he's been strong all year. So he's uh, 17 points back from there. Then we have uh, Jama Masia, uh, 18 points back. And then Suzuki on 22, really courtesy of the fact that he won the race. Or, or 22 points back, rather, his, his total is 27. But that's pretty much all down to the fact that he won in Argentina. Either side mm-hmm. of that, he's not had, or it's been fairly typical Tatsuki Suzuki performances so far. So, yeah, that was Moto3. Now, for me, 
And I think because it was more of a pot boiler, Mo the Moto2 race was the race of the day as far as I was concerned. I thought you would have picked the MotoGP race as the race of the day. Uh, well, I, I would have done for the reason of being a massive fanboy of the guy who won the race. But no, I thought the Moto2 race was quite well, a, it's good. a fascinating I, I'm effect. I'm denying it. As much as anything, because you've got the two guys that are most likely to be going straight through to MotoGP next year, I think. And it was quite a tense battle out front between these two. So... Again, I won't dwell on all of the detail too much, but obviously we have to pick up on the fact that slightly inexplicably, and you didn't really see it very well on the camera, but Jake Dixon went down on the warm-up lap. And again, that must have been quite close to where you were stationed. It was. We were watching him go over, and also I'm like, where'd Dixon go? Because <laughs> <laughs> then it's Strange. like over the hill. Like, it's right there at the hill. But from where we were, I could tell that his trajectory was wrong. I think he took a lot of curb, and I think it just yes. the bike just went from underneath him. Yes, it was definitely a lot of curve. I thought he just, th there is a fair amount of runoff there, like that's paved. I thought he had hopped the curb, disappeared, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to see Dixon come riding back on if I watch long enough. So I'm like, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. <laughs> They're like, oh, Dave Dixon's down. I'm like, go stare at the board to see like what really happened. And it's like, wow, Casey Stoner style from uh uh is it valencia 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 yes valencia yeah. years ago um and did that it's like wow i i don't know i don't think it was the wind i think he just he just got it wrong it just a lot of curb and it just he couldn't get it back and that was that because people were riding that curb a lot coming out at nine but i think dixon just let it go just that little millimeter too far mm. and on a cold tire i don't think he was able to keep it you know the front wasn't warm enough right so it just kind of plowed and way yeah. went but unfortunately it broke the bike or yeah I mean, that broke bike the handlebar over, levers or something over and over several times there's no way he was going to get back on that thing and they did show him going back into the pits you know a few minutes later and there's lots of hands in the air i don't know what happened sort of thing but to me it just looked like as we've said he took a lot of curb and you know a warm-up lap tie would have been nowhere near up to temperature and yeah just a shame really for jake because he'd been strong all weekend as usual he does tend to have this habit of being like the king of Friday, drops back a bit on Saturday, and then drops back a bit further from the race start. I mean, we said this, I think, in our sort of summary of last season, that Jake's main task was to not be doing a Vinales too much and dropping back on the opening lap. So he, he sort of starts really strong and regresses a bit as the weekend goes on. So I'm hoping that's something that, you know, we'll see turn around. But certainly going down on a warm-up lap didn't do his chances any good. And in a championship this tight, it's not helpful in terms of the points as well, because uh, it's all Definitely about finishing not. and finishing strongly all the time. Anyway, my friend Alonso Lopez went straight into the lead when the lights went out. But he quite quickly started to run into... I don't know what your take is, Jim, whether he started hitting some tyre troubles. I mean, again, as we said earlier on, we know he has to ride that bike quite differently. And perhaps when you get a bit caught up in the pack, it's going to prevent your forward progress a fair bit. But right from the get-go, it was Arbolino and Acosta that looked like the guys that were going to, one of them was going to get the win. Mm -hmm. So whilst there wasn't a huge amount of, let's say, classic racing going on, it was all about those two guys, this sort of cat and mouse at the front. Mm -hmm. And I really thought Arbolina was going to win the race, to be honest with you. But mm -mm. your boy basically did a masterclass, didn't he? Yeah, that was a great high-speed chess match where the two of them were basically sparring and figuring out where they were fast and where they weren't. I looked at my buddies and said, yeah. Acosta into 12 will outbreak Arbolino and he'll win. And he'll do it on the last lap. I said, that'll be the only time he'll lead. And it was pretty much true to word. Arbolino did run wide and... At one point, and Acosta was defaulted the lead, 
But then Arbolino went right back by. And I'm not so sure that Acosta just didn't let him go by. But it was very obvious to me, watching them go down the back straightaway, Acosta was rolling off to stay in the draft or was sitting up earlier than Arbolino. I don't know if that came across on TV as evident as it was standing there. I'm like, he's just got the speed. Now, the question is, could he outbreak him on the bumps going in there and keep it upright without running wide. And on the last lap, when Acosta went for it and did that, you saw Arbolino break even harder because he was expecting to undercut Acosta. And Acosta rode the front end sort of in his Moto3-esque way that he did, where we've talked about that so many times when he was on a Moto3 bike, how he just has that feel on the front end. It just made the front end bend to his will. And he did the same thing on a Moto2 bike, which that's a little scary, people. Yeah. <laughs> that might have been up to this point. And I'm talking, you know, are watching him from when he came into Moto3 through that championship last year racing Moto2 to now had to have been the best race Acosta has ridden, period. Because it was intelligent, it was thought out, it was being in the right place at the right time, knowing your strength, knowing your weakness, understanding your enemy's strength and weakness, taking advantage of it at the proper time to not let the other person have that ability to come back. It was a thinking man's race. It was shades of Valentino Rossi in his greatness of the 2003, 2004, 2005 era, where Rossi would play with the field for three quarters of the race and then disappear. So like, there's no fun in winning by a mile. There's a show and I'm going to give you one while I get there. It had shades of that to me. It was that kind of a race. And I'm sitting there thinking like, man, this is just incredible what he's doing. He's going to win this. And then the best parts was they stop at the end and they're both just so super excited. Yeah. And just, you know, shaking hands, high five and the whole, I mean, it was that even made it even just that much sweeter to have that. And then they still were going on with each other and hugging and whatnot. And when they got off the bikes and then made it back to the pits, but that was without a doubt, brilliant racing between those two. And I am looking forward to those two doing a lot more of this for the rest of the year. I think that is what we're going to see now. I'm pretty sure. I mean, again, I think this is sorted. Yeah. I was speculating with you about the likelihood of, you know, again, a couple of things that were said over the course of the weekend where there's a widespread belief that RB Lino is going to be in the Grassini MotoGP team next year, that that deal's effectively already done. So I think it's harsh, but MotoGP is, that is the environment. But Fabio Di Giantono hasn't really done enough to justify staying put on that bike and that team. I don't think one else is going to take Di on. I don't think. So you would have to think that, Arbolino would be a shoe in as an Italian into that team. Yeah. Uh, and his, his manager is Carlo Pernat, who's absolutely tapped into the MotoGP scene and Grassini in particular. So you would think that that's the case. But yeah, Jim, you know, the the sort of the high tracking shot down the back straight that you tend to have, whether there's a helicopter or a drone, I'm not sure. There is a helicopter flying at Coda, I can tell you that. Right. Okay. It was quite obvious that Acosta was sandbagging in terms of not overtaking when he could have done. The only slip up in the whole race, and I don't know if you saw this or heard this, was he looked as if he'd hit a false neutral at the end of the back straight at one point because he did go off the track. Yeah, we did see him go wide and come back on. But you could hear him fishing for a gear. They did the onboard from that. And so that was obviously a little technical glitch. Has that always been like a little triumph thing? Because there's a lot of people who wind up with a false neutral on that bike. It does seem to have. I don't know who makes the gearboxes, but if that's I a think triumph it's all part, triumph. But, uh, maybe. Because I, I remember reading something that they 
uh, Triumph, they would take the motors back and they take them apart and analyze things. And they said you could, they could tell that different riders are harder on the transmission than other riders. And maybe Acosta is just difficult on the transmission. I, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I totally agree with you though, Jim. I mean, he was, that was like a ruthless killer's job, wasn't it? That last lap. And once he took Arbolino, I mean, he just closed the line and just was absolutely pinpoint. It was very, very clever racecraft on his part. And that is very ominous, really. Because yes. last year we saw him crashing a lot. Mm-hmm. He looks as if he's got the crashing part figured out now. That's out of his system on a Moto2 bike now. And he's made the transition. And he could really go on a winning spree from here, which might make the championship quite boring. But it's hard to imagine he won't be on a MotoGP bike next year. The question is, which one? He's going to make Pit Byer's life hell. Well, okay, so do you want to say what we were speculating in terms of the way they might yeah. craft till you get another brand onto the... So you and I have been, had, had this conversation through WhatsApp, and just so everybody understands where we are with this one. There are two spots open on the grid. There is capability of one more team. There are rumors floating around that Aspar wants to be a part of MotoGP. If I'm KTM, why wouldn't I brand one of my bikes as a Husky, give it to Aspar, and put a Costa on it for his first year? Yeah, It seems like it's the perfect storm coming. And Dorna would no doubt bite their arm off at the elbow for that kind of deal. The question would be, can KTM produce two more year-old bikes? I think they you know, can. I'm pretty but sure I, they could. I would ask Bar complain if they had last year's KTM. <laughs> no, they're not. So, I mean, worst case scenario, KTM's got to give them last year's bike. It just makes sense. Yeah. You control three brands. You control Gas Gas, you control Husqvarna, you control your own brand, right? KTM. It makes sense. It gives you a place to stuff him as a rookie, let him crash his brains out or whatever he's got to do to figure out how to ride that one. And then you can either slide him up to Tech 3 the next year, or you could take him right to the, which would be okay because Miller's on a two-year contract. So Miller's next year is probably Miller's last year in the factory unless he does something amazing. Because you know a coster, they're going to, but they would put a Costa in there or something, or they'd give Miller a one-year extension or something for a Costa to ride in a satellite team. Or, I mean, the okay. other one, Jim, would be, I suppose, the jury's out on Paul Spargro, A, because he's been in the championship for a very long time, yeah. and secondly, because he tends to crash and hurt himself quite a lot, and he's obviously, although he will be back, and he'll be desperate to get back as soon as he possibly can, but that was a huge accident that he had in Portimao, and he really has duffed himself up pretty badly with that one. So maybe a spot opens up at Gas Gas, because to be fair to Augusto Fernandez on the other Gas Gas bike, he's doing a solid job Mm -hmm. so far as the sole rookie in the championship this year. So it would be harsh beyond words, unless he has a complete you know, meltdown and... Obviously, we're right at the very, very beginning of the season. There's a hell of a lot of races to go you know, when you can think about the sprints as well. But Fernandez is doing a pretty decent job at the moment, so it would be pretty harsh for him to get turfed out after a single year. But you've got to figure that Dorna are desperate to get those extra two slots on the grid filled up. Now, I heard an interview earlier on that Lynn Jarvis gave, I think it was to the Paddock Pass uh, podcast, and whilst he might be gaming this a little bit and they'll never tell the full truth, but he pretty much ruled out a Yamaha satellite squad next year. I agree with that. You can sort of see that that is not going to happen. So the only other team that I suppose at this point might want a couple more bikes on the grid would be HRC, but, uh, and there is that Aspar link wanting to come back into the MotoGP class, but they've got sort of bigger problems to solve rather than compounding things by having two more bikes out there. So KTM is the obvious candidate, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, of the people who are on the grid right now, Yamaha's not going to build any more bikes. Okay. I don't think Aprilia can afford to build two more. No, no. There's no way. Right. 
Honda can do they want to, which is interesting because they have they're they're starting to go on the up in World Superbike, so on the down in MotoGP. You ever notice how that that's cyclic with them? When the one's up, the one's down. They're never really at the top, but at both times, seems that way. Need to go and check the history books, but yeah, yeah you got to have a history book lesson there. But it seems that way. I mean, let's obviously cut out the doing factor in the '90s, and but yeah, it's usually not both ways. At least recent history. I mean, they could put people on there, but who would go to that bike without it being sorted? I mean, you need more people on it, but people want to be on a bike that's sort of semi-sorted. Like that's why the Ducatis are popular at being a satellite bike, right? It's a sorted bike proven winning combination. The Aprilia is kind of that way too, right? It's the better of what's left over and they now have four riders giving them data. Well, Honda already has four riders giving them data. Just they choose to believe one rider at one time and not everybody else so hopefully now they're gonna to start to believe in what mir and Rins are saying potentially all right let's part the honda thing a minute because we're going to be talking about that a lot right. in a moment. let's round out moto two so yeah um, okay so it finished up uh as you say acosta got the win uh arbelina was second Bo Ben Schneider had an amazing last lap. So he came through and actually pinched. And I don't say that in a derogatory way because, you know, it was his third place was just excellent. Uh, And obviously a great result considering, you know, the emotional turmoil that he'd been through. So he just got across the line in front of Jeremy Alcoba, who, yeah, very strong fourth place for Alcoba. That's probably his best result, I think, in Moto2 today. And Salach Aldegar put in a fairly heroic ride because he'd had a big crash on saturday and was having some wrist difficulties i think so he obviously gritted his teeth lopez was seventh canet was up front early on but sort of faded away don't really know quite what the problem was there vietti who started on the pole as we said he came in i think that was ninth in the end then gonzalez chantra albert arenas who still is very much kind of a little bit hard to spot really at the moment but scoring a few points but nothing spectacular sam lowe's actually came through Finished 13th. And Dennis Foggia, 14th. Oh, that might be his first point scoring finish in Moto2, I think. And Aguirre snuck in for a point, but he's obviously still riding quite badly yeah. injured with that wrist still. So I believe Joe Roberts had some issues with the bike. He came in 16th in the end, uh, but disappointing really, considering it was the home round. Sean Dillon Kelly, 18th. Jim, I guess that's not a terrible result, but they would have hoped for a bit more. And Rory Skinner got his teammate right in behind him in 19th. So that was just a few other notable ones that we tend to pick out. In terms of the championship, uh, Arbelino has got a fairly, well, reasonably healthy lead at this stage. So he's on 61 points. Acosta's second because, of course, he had quite a bad round in Argentina in the slippery conditions. That's the kid's weakness seems to be the rain. Yes. It's funny how the Italians tend to not have a big issue with rain historically, but the Spaniards tend to find it a bit more of an issue. I don't know why that would be, but yes, he... Certainly had a struggle in Argentina, didn't he, in that very low grip mm-hmm. situation. So Costa second on 54. So he's only seven points behind Arbolino, so it's not much of a gap. Then Aaron Canet, 20 points back, a bit more sizable. Uh, Philip Salach, brilliant in fourth, so he's 28 points behind. And then Alonso Lopez is in fifth place currently, uh, 32 points back. So that's reasonably finely poised championship at this stage. But, you know, hey, it's round three, so it's going to be fairly close at this point. So, MotoGP main race. I mean, it's a, a race of two key points, really, I think, isn't it, Jim? Yeah. I don't like the fact that the sprint doesn't count for anything in the starting grid for the main race. I think they ought to change that, really. But So, so we had the same grid as we had in the sprint. On the first lap, uh, Jorge Martin doing what Hawaii Martin tends to do rather too often, which is a bit too much at the wrong time. 
So yeah. again, took a lot of care. But again, I think this is probably pretty much where you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw, oh, yeah. Wiped Alex Marquez out. Yeah. So I hope I wish somebody would have tweeted, "Hey Jorge, you've ruined Marquez's Mar- Alex's race several times." Yeah. I, he. I mean, granted, it's just banter, but what comes around kind of goes around sometimes, right? But that was a, that was a big mistake. Clemson it was. It lap. was very. Yeah. Cl- I mean, it was not as egregious as what Mark did to him in Portimao, but it was pretty stupid. Yeah. You have a Ducati, you're going to be able to go pretty far. But that really helped Quattraro, where Quattraro came out of eighth, I think, on the starting grid. Something like that, yeah. Somewhere close to there, right? He was definitely like third row in, or a, let Quattraro get ahead of, crucially ahead of a couple of Ducatis. And even probably more crucially, it allowed him to have a gap to the front. So he had this area that he was in where he didn't have to worry about his front tire overheating, and he could ride the lines, and he didn't have to try to make it all up on the brakes. So Quattraro really gained a lot from that little incident at the beginning of the race. That was a key point too. Yeah. We should just add that at the end of the back straight on lap one, Alicia Spargo went down. Now at the time, it looked like he just lost the front and crashed. But in actual fact, his rear ride height device didn't disengage. Whoopsies. So he lost the front for that reason. Yeah. I want those things gone. And although we didn't see it, Raul Fernandez on the other, or one of the other Aprilias, obviously the RNF Aprilia, he also either crashed out or had to retire the bike with a stuck shapeshifter as well. And it happened to Vinales in the Saxon ring yeah, last lost year. It. So whether Aprilia's system is prone to this, who knows? But we see other bikes having issues as well. Brad Binder, I think in Indonesia last year, he rode pretty much yeah. the whole race with the bloody thing sat down, didn't he? We've so, had whole shot devices not release either. Yeah. Miller was that way on the Ducati at Silverstone. He said it was you know, like riding a chopper. Leish went down and it looked like, oh dear, you know, Leish started crashing again. But to be fair to the guy, that was not his fault. That was a machine failure. Um, whichever way you look at it. Rins was just riding like a madman, wasn't he? He was so fast. Absolutely just pushing Banya. And I, I'm not claiming any credit for this. It's a great thought because it's pretty obvious, really. But I was immediately thinking, oh, Peko might start to go back to the old Peko that we saw a couple of seasons ago and sort of in the first part of last season even, which is the old crumble under pressure Peko. And, I mean, it's the moment of the race, really, isn't it? But on lap eight, down he goes. Now... Yeah. I think it's probably worthwhile talking about what he said about the incident, really, because from what I could gather, he said it wasn't his fault. The bike is too good. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, I mean, whether he's now expecting Gigi Delinia to make a demonstrably worse bike for him to ride, which he might crash even more. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just a weird... I suppose perhaps what he's saying is that the bike is just so good that, as you mentioned earlier on, the knife edge is just that bit sharper now and uh, he looked he looked slightly offline to me but then what do i know but i think the line was maybe just a little bit different but he was just under a lot of pressure as well so maybe he just pushed a bit too hard maybe it was a gust of wind i don't know if you've got had any more thoughts on it jim because again we were sort of what's up in each other about it but hard one to explain difficult to explain for sure i thought it was just pekka screwing up because it's turn two, it's a very difficult turn. Off camera, you got to get on the gas. You're trying to set yourself up for the S's, where all the time is made up. He had a lead. Renz had ran him down. So there was definitely like, you know, nothing worse than seeing your board suddenly go from 0.3 to 0.2 to 0.1 to plus nothing, right? Yeah. So, okay, Pecos, I thought, oh, Pecos trying to pick the pace up, and he screwed up, hit the bump, and down he went. Again, I don't know what they're doing in practice. He could be checking different lines and different ways to go through the corner to figure out which way is fastest. But to me, I never saw Pekka run the same line twice through turn two. 
and I'm talking about, you know, these guys are all millimeter perfect and Pekka was not even close. So I'm going to assume he was doing something else to try to make a lap time. But I thought he just pressure from Renz and folded. And guess what? Here's the old Pekka back again. And then he rambles off about how about the bike, right? The bike's too good. Well, I've never heard a rider ever talk about how good the bike is. It's an unusual excuse. I mean, okay, I'm not anywhere near their class. But when I was riding a bike, I always wanted to change something or try something or do something. I've had bikes that were pretty good. Basically, when I was like a dirt track and stuff and won a national championship, that bike was great that day. But we did change something. We changed the gearing. We, we looked at the track and said, this is what we're going to change. And we did. And it was perfect. And not perfect, but it was good enough on that day that we weren't going to be beat. So I don't know what's going on with that statement. And so I want the team to tell me what's going on. I'm like, well, everybody else got the same bike, same tire. It, well, I don't know here, pal. I'm not so sure how we can help you. But then I started thinking about this. I read Matt Axley's article. Motorsport Magazine, Gary Malik's article, where the thing of it is, is that if you had a bike like the Honda, it tells you when it's time to back off and where the limit is because all of its gizmos don't work in harmony. Again, we're back to this whole thing of how the Ducati works in harmony with everything that's on it. Yeah. From the whole shot device to the traction control that they have to the shape shifting to the aerodynamics. All this is an integrated one package that makes it all work perfectly. So if it's running that well, then your ability to know where the absolute end of the road is, it's not going to be there. Because, I mean, any motorcycle I've ever ridden, especially road racing it, will tell you this is far enough. You go anymore and you're going away. Now, maybe that's being masked or disguised via aerodynamics, shape-shifting. Take your pick at any number of things that could be masking it. But if we've gotten to the point now where we've dulled off the senses of the motorcycle to where nobody can feel it, no one's going to be able to go faster than where they are. Because you can only do it by going fast. Again, strange comment, but maybe we have reached a point where things like shapeshifters need to go away. Whole shot devices need to go away. We need to get back to where the bikes are more that bucking Bronco crazy thing. Again, you know, maybe they maybe Pecco sits down and he says, you know what? I, I missed my line. I see it now. And I, I lost it on the little bump. It's really strange to hear him say and talk about that. And to sit there and say, well, the bike is too good. You know, almost implying that if I had my 22 bike back, I wouldn't have this pro have had this problem. I think, Jim, I don't I'd, know about that. To cut him the benefit of the doubt, because obviously English is not his first language, no. uh, and I can't speak Italian, so I I'm in no <laughs> position to criticize him. But I'm, I'm hoping and I'm suspecting, as we're talking about this, that he probably just phrased the whole I'm angry with the. I think all that was just probably not really quite what he meant to say or he's what he said didn't come out quite as he was thinking it probably in his mother language i think what he said or is saying is that well it's basically what you just said you know the bike is so good now that the amount of communication he's getting from the bike is just less because it is so pinned and therefore it'll just bite you harder quicker and but he was under immense pressure from alex rins i think if becker had been three seconds up the road he wouldn't have had that crash because he wouldn't have needed to have been pushing that hard into that sketchy turn because we saw a lot of people crash over the course of the weekend going down in from one into two. So in my mind, I think that's what's going on. So I was being a bit glib with the comment about he wants Ducati to build him a worse bike. Clearly he doesn't, but I suspect what he means is that he's lost that critical bit of feedback, that feeling that tells him or gives him a split second to react so that he doesn't crash. So I'm guessing that's kind of what he's on about. I think it's just there's no feel. The bike is numb. Yeah. And that could be it. It's kind of like, like the great Michael Schumacher said in Formula One, he said, well, how do you, some reporter asked him something to the effect of how do you know how fast you're going? He says, well, if you listen to the tires, they'll tell you. And then he said, well, what about in the rain? He says, Michael says, well, you got to listen harder because it's, 
it whispers. <laughs> that's nice. Right. Yeah. I think that's where we are here. Mm. We've gotten to the gizmo world, right? Again, we do this all the time and I'm going to continue to do it. Formula one analogy and the all singing, all dancing, all auto, everything that the cars were like in 93 when Mansell won the world championship in the Williams FW 16 B it had, it, it had an automatic transmission. It had auto downshifts, auto upshifts. It had automatic suspension. So the car was always at the perfect ride height. And Mansell loved that car because it was a softly sprung car, which is the kind of car that he liked to drive. Everybody else who drove that car, because Prost got in that car the very next year and drove it and hated it. He says, a monkey could drive this thing because it's numb. You can't feel anything in it, <laughs> which is what the engineers had designed a system that was better than a human being. And you had to trust the car. And a lot of that started with motorcycles with traction control. I remember calling Edward Center saying, well, you just got to learn to trust the fact that you get to the apex, just crack it wide open and the bike was going to sort itself out. And now you you have put so much trust into the wizardry, the gizmos, the everything. And then you sort of backed it off to where it has to be an analog system. Again, Matt Oxley has a great article on this very thing because the guy who, you know, it's not DG Delini who thought the system up. It's a guy who actually worked in Formula One. I can't think of the name of the engineer right now, who actually thought it up and worked for, and actually was like a civil engineer. He worked for buildings when they were building skyscrapers and had put the first big mass dampers at the top of them. And he did all this stuff in Formula One. And he talks about how the system works. It's an, it is all a mechanically driven bit of hydraulics through accumulators, actuators, and valves. That's all moves mechanically. It's an analog computing system that's doing the work. Fascinating, really, to think about. I mean, again, I'm not going to discredit Gigi Delina and these guys for the amount of effort and talent that they put into these bikes. But I think we may have reached that point where we talked a lot about, again, it comes to Formula One analogy, people. I'm sorry. (laughs) In Formula One, the car is 80% and the driver is 20%. I think we're getting to almost that point where it used to be the rider was 80% and say the bike was 20%. I think we're moving closer to a 50-50 mix in MotoGP. You know, where the guys who have, this is no disrespect to anybody that's on that grid, but you see a lot of guys now at the forefront who, if you think about it, have less talent than some of the people that are on the grid, right? But they're doing very well because their lesser talent is masked by how good the motorcycle is. Yeah. I still rate Marquez as probably one of the greatest motorcycle racers that's ever thrown a leg over a bike. Sorry, folks. I'm just going to go there. I think Quattararo is in that same league of elite greatness. Like all these guys are great, but there's that elite level. There's that alien level that was talked about long ago, right? So I think Quattararo is an alien. I think Marquez is like an alien. I think that people like Brad Bender is not as talented, but dogged determination alone is going to make him there all the time, right? I think Renz is very talented, especially now, having seen what he's done with this Honda. He's moved up in my order of ranking of talent, right? But like you look then at people like Bezeki or Zarco, they're talented. They're very talented. They're world champions in their own right of where mm-hmm. they came from. But they're not that super elite, but they're very at the, they're at the front, and it's because the bikes are so good. I hope I've explained that well enough for everybody to... I think you're right. I mean, it's just a bit harsh on some of the people, but I, I can't see where you're coming from with that. I mean, debatably, as you just said, Jim, there's two aliens, to use that old terminology yeah. in the series at the minute, one of whom's injured. Uh, and even Quattararo, I don't know, I mean, a bit early, and he's, he's only been in the 
championship for four years don't forget so he's not been around a huge huge amount of time but he's definitely up there but Marquez I mean yeah I, I would always stop short of calling anybody the greatest of all time because I just don't think you can can compare across decades of completely different tracks circuits technology etc cetera, etc cetera. but Marquez is you know generationally the best that we've seen uh, I don't think there's any question about that. But segueing rather neatly, though, into Alex Rinsen, because like you, I mean, I, I was watching through my fingers because I was just sure he was going to lose the front at some point because he was pushing like hell. But a couple of interesting things that I've read and heard since Sunday's race is that he has actually backed the traction control off massively on that bike. So yes. because we know that the Honda, or anecdotally, we hear that the Honda has you know vicious power delivery and it's been one of their primary problems. So clearly Alex is taking that more into his own hand and wrist in this particular case. And I think it was David Emmett saying that, and you might have spotted this from trackside. I must admit, I hadn't spotted it so much from the TV footage, but it's harder to spot because you're talking tiny details. But Alex riding the Honda much more in his sort of Moto2 style, much more kind of sweeping, arcing lines, not the Mark Marquez going shallow, you know, the V corner. Alex is definitely riding much wider lines and carrying corner speed. And although he was getting outgunned massively, on the back straight it wasn't as bad as you might have expected because he was he's just arriving into straights quicker by carrying more corner speed and apparently again anecdotally on saturday after the sprint nakagami was beside himself wanting to see rins's data to find out how the hell he was a second a lap quicker and he's really putting joanne mir in the shade at the moment on the you know the works hrc bike because i mean mir's having a okay he's been unlucky he's had some crashes and he's been taken out one thing and another, but I, I do wonder whether or not HRC are looking and thinking maybe we've got the wrong guy on the work squad. At this point in time, they just need good data and some different directions to go in. And I'm not expecting Rins to go and start ripping off race wins. He is a Kota specialist. I mean, he's won in Moto3, Moto2. He won on the Suzuki last year, possibly, or the year before, certainly. So he is a specialist at that track. It's obviously probably one of, if not his favourite track. We know that. So that's obviously going to play a part as well. But we had this discussion a few shows back where we were saying, you know, Ken Kawachi, who's come into that team from Suzuki as the sort of the technical lead, has got his two ex-Suzuki riders with him. And you do wonder, I mean, Mark Marcus must have been besides himself and not in a good way, you know, on his sofa at home with his broken hand that a guy on a Honda had just won at his, Mark Marquez, his coater, isn't he? So will, at some point, will Honda start to think, look at the longer game in terms of the younger riders that they've got? And perhaps if they're riding the bike in a different way and making it work, are we going to see a bit of a sort of paradigm shift in the mentality under new technical leadership as well? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see where they go with this because they've, they've got a good problem on their hands now. Saw a tweet with Rain Rainey. He says the only way to fix Marquez's problems is to put him on a different bike. Yeah. And it might be true. I mean, the kid's been beat up a lot, surgeries and whatnot, but I don't know how this is going to go. Now I'm, I'm super fascinated now to see how this plays out. Yeah, definitely. One, because Rins has seriously put Mir in the shade, which I did not see that coming. Sorry. I did. I've, I've all, I, well, you would. <laughs> you're, you're Richard Jallet. You're Adelphic Oracle of, <laughs> and fanboy of, <laughs> Alex Renz, but I never knew how to rate Mir because I always thought that his championship was an odd one. He, to me, lacked the killer instinct that a champion has. Okay, he played the long game. He won. Fine. Weird season. You're world champion. I'm not taking anything away from you. But Renz, you started to see some crazy things there at the end of last year when Suzuki left, right? He won the last two races on the trot on two very different tracks. Yeah. I'm like thinking, wow, and he's only going to LCR, but he does have an HRC contract. That is, he is 
signed as an HRC rider. Yeah, he's a factory rider, yeah. He's a factory rider, but he just happens to be on a different team. Maybe Honda thought that Mir was the better candidate because he was a world champion. Okay, we're going to put a world champion in the team with Mark Marquez. This is going to work better. Conspiratorially, you could say Honda knew that Renz was better and they put Mir there so that Marquez would never be in the shade of Mir, right? Or not in the shade of Renz, right? You could separate them between the two teams. I got to think that Marquez, while mad that he's not there to win his, at his track, he's got to be happy to see that they at least made some kind of progress, right? If you don't think that Marquez is going to be have full access to all the data and all the settings that Renz put on that bike, you're fooling yourself. He's going to see it all. Oh, he's going to see everything. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be told everything. The, the question right? is, Jim, is he going to like what he sees? I don't know. Because here's this other big curveball that's hanging out there. As Calix Chassis shows up next weekend, and as Dave Neal pointed out to me, and I had forgot this, but as soon as he said it, I remembered it. Marquez is kind of going home to that Calix Chassis because Mark Marquez won Moto2 Championship on a Calix when everybody and their brother wanted a suitor. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I don't, I mean, Calex builds the frames that they, for the 600 Hondas, and they made a successful motorcycle out of that. They then went to Triumph Motors, which is a completely different motor, and they still build a frame that is very successful. Honda's going to obviously has given Calex where all the motor points are, where the center of gravity of the motor is, all of that stuff that's important. Calex knows where it is. I don't think Calex is going to fail at building a chassis for Marquez. The question is whether Mark, again, it's the package. Is all this stuff integrated together properly? Apparently, Renz thinks that it's not because he wants no traction control, a la Casey Stoner. Stoner's like, eh, turn that crap off. But there's very few people on the planet that are connected that well with the throttle to the field. Mm. I think, though, Jim, I think HRC's problem is themselves a bit more nuanced in a way because Mark Marquez and HRC, they're sort of synonymous, right? But Mark has been badly injured for, what, two years now? And, At least. You know, he ain't getting any younger. And HRC, you have to, and he's getting, I think, by the end of next season, he's out of contract, I think. Yeah, next year, he's got a he's got one more year. At the end of he had that super long one, didn't he? He signed for four years at, at, the, beginning, at the beginning of 2020. So 2020, 21, 22, or 21, 22, 23, 24 is his four-year run. He's done then. You know, we've seen and, and said many times over in recent shows that the love affair, the sort of the marriage between Marquez and HRC, the, the cracks have been appearing with some of the things that have been said. And he's had a rough time. Okay, fine, fair enough. But now HRC have just witnessed a guy, admittedly at a track that he's known to be very, very good at, riding the bike in a very different way and riding, well, maybe not even riding around the problem, just riding the bike as it may be it needs to be ridden now. My point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, if HRC don't see Mark Marquez as the future, then there's no point in them trying to continue to develop the bike that he wants to ride. Either he has to change, and, and I think the the sort of the balance of power has now shifted probably more across the rins because of the Ken Kawachi situation in there as well. I think HRC would jump at the chance not to have to bring in the Calix chassis on board full stop because for them, that's yeah. a face-saving thing as well. So there are many sort of facets to this. And I think what Rins did on Sunday, whilst it might be a bit of a flash in the pan because of its track specific, it might just shine a light on which direction they need to go in. And it might be counter to the direction that Mark Marquez would choose to go himself. I think that's the conundrum that they're now facing. Do they sort of piss off their superstar and sort of force him to go to another bike, which he has threatened to do, let's remember, and just embrace 
the talent that they've got in abundance from what was the work Suzuki squad. So that's kind yeah. of the interesting thing for me in terms of how this now politically and technically and all the rest of it sort of shapes out. I completely agree with you. Everything you said is perfectly logical, valid point, the, the whole nine yards. But in the back of my mind, I got to think that if you put Marquez on any of the bikes, especially now, I think he could win on him. I think, I think if he was on an Aprilia, he could win. I think if he was on a KTM, he could win. The Yamaha, okay, that's probably the outlier, right? Mm. But who's going to want him? Well, he's going to cost a shed load of money unless he's prepared to go somewhere for virtually nothing. I think yeah, I think he, if he goes somewhere, it's going to be like Jorge Lorenzo going to Honda for 800,000 euros. The kid's got enough money. Yeah, he he's doesn't fine for the rest of his life. So I don't know. This is kind of where we talked about this. I know I said it was that Rossi couldn't adapt to where things were going. And Rossi was tooling around at the back of the pack because he couldn't ride the way he couldn't ride the bike the way that he wanted to. And every essentially Yamaha stopped listening to Valentino Rossi. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, that's exactly what happened. And then Rossi does because Rossi was Rossi. He did what he wanted to do. Now, granted, Rossi was as fast as he'd ever been at Valencia, but it wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. No. Age is also a very determining factor in Rossi as well. The question is, Marquez has been beat to death. He's definitely, he's, is he going to be 31 now? I think, I think. so, yeah. I think yeah. he's going to be 31. I mean, he's not an old man, but no. he's been no. around the block, hasn't he? Been beaten up a lot and all that. And he's also found that there's more to life than racing a motorcycle. But he does seem to have a burning desire to win two more championships just so that he can say, I'm better than Rossi. The kid's got motivation. I'll give him that. But I don't know if he can adapt his style. I think he can. The only person who knows that he can or he can't is Marquez. Yeah. Uh, th- this is more fascinating now. <laughs> you know, it was going to be fascinating just because they're going to have a Calyx chassis for him in Perez, right? Now that Rins wins makes it even more fascinating because like, wait a second, hold on here, pal. We spent however many hundreds of thousands of euros to get you a chassis that you wanted. And that guy over there is winning. Albeit this is an outlier, right? I'm, 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 I'm fascinated to see what Renz does in Hareth. I can't wait for Hareth because I just mm. want to see what Renz does now, right? Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, you know, and Renz has come through a lot of problems too. He had a, that shoulder injury and that happened in 2020. It, he came back too soon, in my opinion. He should have let it rest. The same, you know, he's had problems too, but Renz is only 27 years old, which I, I was shocked when he found out he was only 27. I really thought Renz was closer to, well, I mean, he is almost 30, but I really thought Renz was... 29 or something i was shocked that he was 27 because he's just been there forever right yeah but this leaves honda in a lurch i think you're dead right jim you know if he puts in a performance anywhere close to that at one of the sort of more nagery tracks like her sniffing a podium then honda really have to think very very hard about which way they're going to go and where their loyalties are going to lie both in terms of both riders in the official hrc squad for that matter because like you you know a championship they don't give them away but that was a weird year that mia won and i think he only won one race that year one yeah he was only because a lot of talk was he's going to be the first champion to ever win a world championship without winning a race but he finally yeah. got one like right at the end somewhere uh, valencia was it right at the very one of the, end? was it porto mayo if one of the, one of the it was one of those wasn't it right at the very very end and of course at that time rins was going through his sort of anus horribilis of constantly crashing the front end mm-hmm. but i think that was all about just trying to make up for suzuki at that point their sort Down of engine power. shortfall so he was just rushing corners because he's a corner speed guy well that mm-hmm. is now what's just won him a race Mm-hmm. yeah this is um, this is fascinating really fascinating it is. there's so much intrigue in this alone then you throw in the intrigue of 
now with Pecco and the bike at Ducati, along with all the other guys at Ducati, and, and Tardazzi trying to have to manage all this is even more intriguing, right? So there's there's as much fun in the off track in the garage to watch now as there is on the track because of what's all going on. Yeah, I mean, the thing of it is, a lot of people, I mean, people have contracts. I mean, how many people are going to not have contracts or going to get contracts taken away or are going to... It may not be this year, but end of next year, there is going to be a massive shuffle. Well, I think there a will, yeah. massive shuffle of things around. Because there's some serious talent that needs to come up from Moto2 as well. Let's not Again, forget. Again, Aspar, Husqvarna, it's you two more bikes. But, I mean, KTM is now, if you look at it, KTM is following sort of the Ducati element, right? Have a group of riders that you just pull through the system. Yeah. And KTM has kind of got that now. But then again, they found their golden child. They found Pedro Acosta. Out of all of this, they found that. Yeah. Not a bad give up, right? Yeah. I can't conceive that they will allow him to go outside of Anywhere the KTM else. family. Not even on a sort of loan basis or anything like that. Nope. Like you sometimes Not see. even close. No. So they've got to place him somewhere. Yeah. And they will be ruthless if they have to be. Yes, they will. Which is why I have a fear for, say, Paul Espargaro, for example. They might be that ruthless that they do just... Like, sorry, <laughs> we're buying you out of your contract. I mean, hey, Red Bull, can you cut us a check for a couple million euro? Why? <laughs> hey, we're getting rid of poll. Oh, and the mail. See you later. Click. I mean, it's just, I, I, I hate to be callous like that, but it's it's almost true with them. Yeah. They have found something totally amazing. It remains to be seen. There's a lot of, there's a, a lot of racing Acosta has to do, right? The rest of this year. I'm going to be very interested to see what happens at Le Mans because it's usually wet. Usually cold, usually nasty. What's he gonna do there? Oh, yeah. our luck will be a brilliant day. It'll be 82 degrees and Fahrenheit, people, and sunny, old money. As you said, his Achilles heel at the moment would appear to be the wet kind of or low it, grip yeah. situation. But you know, all the good riders get their head around that eventually. I mean, Lorenzo used yeah. to be poor in those conditions and sort of came mm-hmm. much better. So. I mean, we haven't really talked much about the rest of the race, have we? But that, to be fair, no, there isn't there really a great deal else no. to talk about, is there really? I mean, Martin took Alex Marquez out, as we said, and it was kind of the Peco, and then would Rins hang on? I mean, um, I, stupidly, I was so excited. I didn't actually write down the finishing results or the championship positions, oh, but it, yeah, where, did, where did Quattraro come in the end? Was he... So Quattraro got the podium. Right, okay. So Quattraro had run to the podium. Now, he was helped by a couple of crashes that took place there as well to get there, but, you know, he got there. Marini was the guy that was closing in on Renz, and I did have a fearful moment there that Marini might catch Renz, and we might have a repeat of VR46 having guys win races back-to-back, but it didn't pan out. Marini took the safe bet in because uh, I think the tire was starting to give up maybe a little bit or he didn't think Quattraro was that was coming as hard as he was, but it was close there at the end. Then Vinales showed up. He got a bad start, but, you know, still now he's fourth. But again, a lot of people crashed. A lot of things happened to get him there. Oliveira had a decent ride to be fifth. Bezecchi looked looked good too. Zarco then seventh. Uh, Morbidelli, Gigi Antonio, uh, then uh, Fernan- Augusto Fernandez, Piro on the substitution ride. Jonas Folger and then Brad Binder who had crashed and remounted as well. So that gave us all of the riders and where they were. Now the championship, well, sorry, the championship after the actual race puts Bezecchi on top at sixty four points. Benyaya, having failed to score points, is second at 53. So there's, what, 11 points difference right there between the two early days. But Renz's victory added 25 points to his total and jumped him to 47. So he's only two points ahead of Maverick Munoz, who's fourth. Then Zarco is fifth. Marini went to sixth. 
Quattro is now seventh. Thanks to that podium, Alex Marquez falls to eighth. Binder is ninth and Morbidelli is 10th. Unfortunately, Morbidelli was nowhere to be found this weekend. Mm. Except for on the ground. As we feared would be the case, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's happened to Frankie, but sad times there. Yeah. So, but that's the championship. Jim, we've been going for two and a half hours pretty much. Oh, so Sorry, guys. We were going to have a quick chat. Maybe we'll hang it over if that's okay. Matt Pataka, yeah, his email. Um, let's perhaps uh, pick that one up on the next show, um, which sure. will be... Uh, depends if we're going to get one next week that's an off week. Yeah, have a news and feedback. So, yeah, if anybody wants to send some feedback in, that would be a good time to do it. Or questions would be a good time to do it because we'll do a quick show perhaps next week. I've got a couple of people that I'm meant to be talking to as well, but as often with these things, dates move around and things a little bit, but we might have a few other things. I think that's us done, Jim, isn't it? I mean, we've, it's been a bit of a mammoth show and we have talked rather a lot, so apologies for that, but that's kind of the whole point, I suppose. But just yep. really interesting weekend in all sorts of different ways as we've just discussed at large. So It's a lot different being at the track, right? There's a lot more to say, to see, to know. Yeah. Then, you know, you're kind of there at the buzz. So I apologize for sort of rambling on, folks, but that's what happens when you send me to Dakota, when I send myself Dakota. Now, I'm going to try and get to a i mean i had originally thought i would try to get to Kota with you this year but my sort of plans associated with work didn't quite work out as i hoped that they might and i've now just taken up an offer to be somewhere very nice on holiday at the beginning of august uh, which i couldn't really turn down but it means i won't be at silverstone because unfortunately i'm away when the silverstone race mm. happens which is a shame because i do like going to Bummer. silverstone although crowd is getting thinner each year and it gets more expensive to get in every year but but i might try and take in an overseas race somewhere a little bit later in the year if, if budgets allow so sounds good yeah so uh, it'll be nice, if possible, to go and, as you say, Jim, experience a different track and watch the MotoGP bikes and see how they're different at a different place for a change. So, yeah, hopefully something to look forward to. I think that's it for now. So yeah. we will see you for episode 726, probably sometime next week. Uh, I'll let you sign out, Jim, with your usual thing that you'd like to tell people, including me now, because my bike's back on the road again. Oh, guys, remember, get a ride safe, because I want you to be here for the next episode. Ride safe, everyone. Cheers, everyone. See you next time.